I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. <laughs> crazy youngsters and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and I am flanked with the pulsating musical brains of Simon Price. Hello. And Neil Kulkarne. Hello there. How are we, chaps? Very well, thank you. Spring is in the air. It is, yeah, it is. I'm sort of, uh, at the moment, hoping the Russians love their children too. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people are. Um, yeah. Although faintly alarmed, actually. Even though previously we mentioned that Coventry is city of culture, yes. um, I'm alarmed at the news that both Liam Gallagher and the fucking Stereophonics are coming to Coventry um, oh, for no. something called the Radio One Weekend, whatever that is. If this is what the increased attention given to Coventry by the city of culture means, I think we should send it back, to be honest with you. Yeah. Give it to Paisley instead. You'd rather languish in anonymity Absolutely. than attract that kind of attention. Absolutely. Well, the thing is, I live, I live well near the park where this is going to happen. So it's going oh, to be, no. you know, it, I'm, it's going to be audible for my back garden, which is, so I'm going to have to oh, seal myself off for that day, I think. Can't you have a massive bonfire or something? Yeah, I think it's time to do the run bonfire through. Bonfire and fans. <laughs> it's time to do the run through for the, you know, the zombie apocalypse, basically, and seal all borders. <laughs> so before we get stuck into this episode and the, uh, the the episode of Top of the Pops, we're going to pull apart with our little hands this week. Um, it's another reminder that we have now got a Patreon account. Patreon.com slash chart music. Yeah, I remembered it. Good for me. Basically, chaps. As we said in the previous uh, episode, we need your money fast. We've got <laughs> shit equipment and we're, we're poor writers, aren't we, man? We're scuffling. It's a hard knock life for us. <laughs> yeah. It really is. I mean, I, and, yeah. and as a quick reminder, Simon, tell, tell the good folk, tell the pop crazy youngsters, if you will, what you're recording through at the minute. Well, I'm recording through an iPhone, which I think comes from where Tony Blair was still in power. So, yeah, that gives you some idea of the vintage <laughs> of equipment. It's not kind of it's, it's not kind of cool vintage. The kind of stuff that you know the White Stripes might make an album with. It's just shit vintage. Yeah, it's it's terrible, isn't it? Because you did have a, a ten dollar Chinese microphone. Didn't you? I did have a ten dollar Chinese microphone, but we need at least at least eleven dollars to replace it. Unfortunately, yeah. Neil, tell tell the world what you're recording through at the minute. I'm recording. I mean, to be honest with you, my penury has forced me to a life of crime. I'm recording no. <laughs> through a stolen microphone. I, um, yeah. Well, this this is you know I work at a media college and we have a few of these oh, things knocking no. about, but they're well old. So no. I'm I'm open quote marks borrowing this. But um, no, I need better. It it is, it is terrible. Look at what you forced me to. Yeah. Um, uh, So hopefully the Patreon account will enable me to leave behind this life of uh, crime. Well, we've got plenty of people who've already pledged a bit of money, kicked in a bit of cash for uh, for 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 us 
for us poor people here at Chart Music. I just want to run through a few names. Friends of the show, if you will. So Darren Williams, Otter Lee, Neil Denner, Richard Coppin, Richard Ogood. Oh, you've all kicked in some dollar for us. David Sperry, Darren Hubbard, John Skilbeck, Anthony Gregory all laid the fucking money down for chart music, as did Tim Jones, Greg Palin, Russell Cope, Chris Adams, Jason Brooks, Andy Mullin, Lee Pelletiero, Martin Baker, Fletcher Wilkerson, Michael Burke and Alan McGregor. And that's all I'll say for now. Those people, thank you very much. You, yes. you, you, you really care about us. You really love us. Legends, legends. legends. It's all blokes, isn't it? Why is it all blokes who listen to us? I don't know. <laughs> Come on, ladies, dig into your pocket, into your, into your purses. You know you like our sexy, sexy voices. <laughs> Don't be shy, girls. Kick a bit of dollar in the G-string. We, we need Geldof to start shouting. We yeah. need Geldof to say, fuck the address and all that kind yes. of stuff. You know? Yes, we do. Yes, yes, yes. So, anything popping interesting to talk about? That's all bollocks, isn't it? I don't, I, who it says who it's listens to modern music? Bollocks. What kind of loser listens to modern music? Seriously, yeah. You know, all right, Janelle Monáe's new new uh, two tracks are absolutely phenomenal. They've blown my mind. Um, mm. But apart from yeah. Janelle Monáe, it's all a load of bollocks, as the, as Coventry's own specials would have put hey. it. Yeah, Indeed. yeah. And bollocks, and bollocks to, to it all. all. So, pop craze youngsters, let's not fanny about. Let's get stuck into this episode. And this episode comes at you all the way from July the fourth, nineteen eighty five. Oh, yeah. hey. Reason I picked this one is because I thought, you know what? All the pop craze youngsters are watching the repeats at Top of the Pops on BBC4. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? Let's select an episode that's either just about to turn up on their schedules or have just been. Yeah. So uh, this one this one was the nearest one to hand. So hopefully by the time you hear this, uh, you'll, be able to, uh, you'll be able to watch along and, um, well, as long as you watch it really slowly because obviously we go on a little bit longer than they do. <laughs> yeah, basically all those blokes whose names you just read out will be sat there with, with a kind of pause button on BBC4, really pissing off their other halves, going, no, 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 yeah. hang on a minute, I've got to see what yeah. Neil Kukani's got to say about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, 1985, summer of 1985, July mm. of 1985, early July of 1985, we are only about nine days away from Live Aid which is the absolute brick wall that runs through the the, the pop music map, if you will. Yes. So, you know, we've, we've discussed before, you know, I always used to say that when I was taping Top of the Popses and pulling them down from uh, the various torrent sites, my cut-off point was this very month. Anything after this time, I'm not interested in. So, before we go into it, chaps, let's refresh everyone's memory and tell us why Live Aid is, is, is that thing. You know, it's weird. I only see it as that in retrospect because at the time, nobody knew the sort of malign effect it was going to have. And I no. I, 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 associate mm. the day mm. of Live Aid with the taste of cheesy Watsits and Orange Aid because um, I was babysitting for my mum's <laughs> mate's toddler um, uh, and, and uh, I was sat there uh, eating the snacks that had been laid on for me and hovering over, because I didn't have a video <laughs> recorder, Jesus, um, I was hovering over a cassette recorder with a Memorex tape in it, uh, waiting to record my favourite bits, my favourite bands. Mm. And I, I was really into it. I mean, a few months earlier, yeah. I'd um, run a band-aid disco at the local nightclub, Tramps, um, to raise a, raise a few quid for the for the appeal. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I kind of bought into the good intentions of it big time. 
uh, back then. But it's only in retrospect that, that you do see this kind of dividing line. And it was basically the day that the dinosaurs came marching back in. Yeah. And um, I talk about my favourite yeah. bands. I, I, I maintained in, in the face of all uh, sane evidence that the Style Council were the best band of the whole day. Yeah. Um, just because they were my favourite band who played yeah. that day. Second Evid- band on, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And evidently they were not. Um, so... It, it, it was uh, essentially it, it coincided with the CD revolution, and it yeah. was a time when dads, well, mums and dads, uh, were watching TV all around the world, but particularly in Britain, um, and suddenly not feeling that pop had shut them out and alienated them. It was yeah. all their old heroes uh, coming back and basically wiping the floor with the younger generation. It has to be said yeah. that people like. Uh, Queen and, and David Bowie and so on uh, put on <laughs> the old guard wiped the floor with the likes of Duran Duran, Adamant and pains me to say it, the Star Council Yeah. Um, and suddenly it was okay to go out and uh, well, A, buy the new albums by these artists but you know reinvest in greatest hits and it changed music forever because um, essentially record companies realised that uh, there was money to be made with almost zero outlay in just reselling back catalogue mm. Um and also, it, it it did it it led to kind of the real kind of megastar culture of the second half of the eighties. It, it it led to you know these yeah. these kind of giants bestriding the earth like Springsteen and Madonna and Prince and Jacko and all of. I mean, Jacko was already huge, but yeah. but you, but you know what I'm saying. And uh, um, all the kind of weird, freaky, interesting stuff was pushed to one side. And also, it imbued pop with this new sense of moral responsibility that pop was there, that the reason pop was there was no longer um, transcendence or rapture. It was just to, you know, do the decent thing, do the right thing. And uh, everything got very boring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, but like Simon, for me, that all of those things that Simon said are absolutely spot on. But I, likewise, only felt that in retrospect. At the time, I was excited about it. And mm. the reason being was that our school actually banned Live Aid. Um, no. we wouldn't, <laughs> what? We, well, we were not allowed. Because, you know, there was so much talk about Live Aid and the Ethiopian fam- famine. Um, you know, we were not allowed to actually do anything for charity for Live Aid. We were actually called into an assembly and we were told... The Ethiopian regime is a communist regime and we are not allowed to support it. Um, that's Fascists! Kind of, yes, yeah, so that's the kind of fucking school I went to. Um, so, you know, that, that forbidden sense of it, I was actually really, really tremendously excited about Live Aid. And as a kid, you accept things at face value. It was only yeah. kind of two years later, really, when I started reading The Melody Maker, to be honest, and it's people like David Stubbs and Simon Reynolds who still refer to Live Aid as this kind of zenith of, yeah, the pompous kind of sanctimony of pop that I, mm. that I sort of twigged that yeah something actually pretty horrible was going on there that was less about helping people and perhaps more about shoring up other people's egos and mm. actually really look thinking of the music around that period um you know the last time me and pricey i think we do, were doing chart music we were talking about 83 and we could already see yeah. the signs that music was getting this way mm. a live age useful as a kind of you know perfect middle point but things were getting shit for a quite a while before that in terms of the pomposity of pop stars the sort of wrong sanctimon- sanctimonious pomposity of pop stars and things stuck around being terrible for some time afterwards. So Live Aid, I think, is a really useful central marker. But at the time, like anyone else, I was suckered by it and I was excited by it. Mm. I mean, you weren't here for it, were you, Neil? No, I wasn't. So I was massively annoyed about the fact that I was flying to bloody India 
Um, when, I, when I wanted to be at home, you know, obviously watching status quo. But, yes. um, you know, um, I, I wasn't here. And, and, and it annoyed me for some time afterwards. It was lovely when Melody Maker gave me a sort of righteous reason for actually um, missing it. And also, it was a bit yeah. like FA Cup final day. in that It was you know, exactly yeah. like FA Cup final day. Because, you know, uh, and, you know, match the day <laughs> being the football equivalent to Top of the Pops, uh, basically we were rationed our our music yeah. in, in these yeah. weekly instalments of Top of the Pops in the same way that football fans were, were rationed these little snippets of matches on match of the day. And, you know... Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, um, FA Cup final day was the only day you had a whole day of you know the build up and the aftermath and the whole yeah. game itself. Uh, yeah, and it was it was like that. It's, you sort of sit back and, and luxuriate in live music being on TV for a whole day. It was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, that was that was quite the thing, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, there'd been um, there'd been all day kind of like whistle, te- well, all evening whistle tests and a midsummer night's tube and stuff like that. Yeah, but the actual day and evening. Uh, going into the early hours of the morning, oh man, it was it was amazing. It was like having MTV before the event. Yeah, yeah, and and so rare back then. Whereas now, you know, I actually actively yeah. avoid the television when it's Glastonbury weekend. So I just don't <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, today, yeah. yeah. So, what was in the news this week? Well, Reagan and Gorbachev have announced a summit in Geneva later this year. The Liberal SDP alliance are about to win the Brecon and Radnor by-election. Arthur Scargill becomes the NUM president for life. John McEnroe is knocked out of Wimbledon by Kevin Curran. But the big news this week is that Prince Charles has revealed that the Queen really likes Wham. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she heard... She heard one of their tunes on the telly and uh, just said she liked it. I wonder which one it was. It, it couldn't have been Wham Rap. <laughs> no. no. Or Young Guns, I think. That's quite an achievement for Wham to be down with the Chinese Communist Party and the House of Windsor. That takes some doing. <laughs> <laughs> so on the cover of the NME this week is R.E.M. On the cover of Smash Hits, Howard Jones. The number again... The number one LP is Misplaced Childhood by Marillion. Jesus. Fucking hell, yeah. In America, the number one single is Heaven by Brian Adams. And the number one LP is the soundtrack to Beverly Hills Cop. So, me boys, what were we doing in July of 1985? Um, in 85, well, I was, I just turned, well, I was 12. I was about to be 13 when this episode came mm. out. I think I was just basically starting to properly um, hate school. Mm. Um I was sort of a year into constantly being on report as I was for four years. And I was just constantly in the shit for really stupid, stupid stuff. Yeah, um, this sounds familiar. Not because I was, yeah, it's not because I was particularly naughty. It's just I got caught for everything that I did. So I think I remember 85 as being the first year I got a Saturday detention. Which oh, no. Oh, yeah. Nine till 12, right in the morning, I had to go into school. Serious punishment, that. Um, and it was for a silly thing. I added um, spunk, not real spunk, <laughs> Tipex spunk. Uh, right. Tipex spunk to a Tipex cock on a teacher's um, bum. You haven't changed. Um, 
No, I haven't changed. <laughs> he had been, he was a teacher called Gaz Morgan, who, who stank of fags and kind of sour defeat, much like I do now <laughs> as a teacher. Um, and he, he used to go around the class sort of looking at people's work, bending over to do so. And, and people have been progressively creating this cock on his ass. <laughs> like one person had done a bollock and then another person had done another bollock. You know, somebody had added the hairs and then somebody had done the shaft. Um, and I just added a couple of dots of spunk like and, you, like uh, you, that, like you should do, yeah. As is the law, <laughs> it is the law, and um, that you know, obviously, I, I'm a bit cack-handed and I wasn't gentle enough or something. And he noticed <laughs> um, straight Saturday detention. So yeah, I was really starting to properly hate school in '85. Was was it you, Neil? When uh, there was the recent uh, blizzard in the UK and people were doing um, snow cocks, uh, who was who was yeah, complaining yeah. that there aren't enough. Sh- uh, you know, droplets of jizz coming out the top. Well, yeah. well, piss poor. I mean, to be honest with you, I've let the lack of hairs <laughs> in recent uh, cocks, uh, pictorial cocks, pass. I've accepted well, people that. people shave That's these days. Going... Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah, do shave, grooming, yeah. And, yeah. And I've accepted that. That's been going on for years, and I think it's something that can't be resisted now. But the, but the, the lack of spunk, it's a sad <laughs> indictment, I think, of, of, of kids' imaginations. Yeah. Yeah, but because this, this reminds me. I mean, uh, the last time, uh, last time me and Simon spoke was uh, was the Mike Reed episode, and mm-hmm. uh, I didn't bring up that um, when Blue Tulip was writing those letters to Mike Reed, the uh, the camera panned across one of the envelopes. Oh yes, and she'd drawn the worst cock and balls ever. <laughs> it was awful, man. It was absolutely just just anatomically. Wrong, but it's but what she, but it's, it's but what she, she got imagined. The yeah, it's what she imagined Mike Reed's cock looked like. You know, <laughs> yeah. one can only assume, like the yeah. one Lynn does on that teacher's back in that episode of Iron Man and Partridge. Yes, the one that looks like a mouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finger bobs. Is this why you had to go away to India? By the way, no, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. They weren't. They weren't hiring me out of the country. It's just the annoying. Yeah, it was just I was always caught. I never got yeah, away with like anything. That. I was like know. that. And that was that was what was annoying. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, the explanation I had to give to my mum for this Saturday detention that was a tricky thing. But um, yeah, Saturday detentions, our school did them. And speaking to other people, I think that's quite a rare thing. Yeah. Saturday detention. Yeah, it is. it's outside their jurisdiction. You think like what? It what is. Right yeah, have they it got is. To yeah, but, but it, it it was one step away. I mean, that was that was the kind of uh, one step away from suspension, and then obviously expulsion. I mean, I oh, I wasn't a bad kid. But um, I had a few Saturday DTs, DTs. A teacher, when I left, told me I broke the record for detention. Wow. I wasn't that bad. I wasn't setting fire to anything. <laughs> no. I was just a silly sod, a puerile. And I remember one of my reports, actually, in 85, a teacher, the headmaster kind of wrote at the end, neurosurgeon or dustman, the choice is his. <laughs> um, so I'm quite glad that as a music journalist, I kind of went for the middle path. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're fixing our brains while throwing the bad stuff in the dumper, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, this was the summer holiday between lower and upper sixth for me. Um, heady days, you know, kind of delirium of hormones and angst, um, typical for that age, defined for me by standing against the wall at teenage house parties while everyone else got off with each other um, and I didn't, and walking home alone. And that, that's how I remember it. Um, my two, <laughs> My two main obsessions musically were the Smiths, um, who yeah. I, I'd seen in Cardiff on my 17th birthday, and Prince. And I'd sort of begun dressing mm. as a dandy retro hybrid of the of the two. Um, oh, fucking hell. I know. <laughs> what, you were bollock naked with some gladioli over your cock or something, like in Love Sex, eh? <laughs> Pretty much. 
Um, so my, mm, my Saturday... There's an image. We wonder why no women listen to us. <laughs> nah, it was... No, basically, I'm, I'd, I'd go into this place called Jacob's Market in Cardiff, uh, which is a mm. sort of a vintage, antiques uh, indoor market, and I'd buy up um, vintage uh, granddad shirts and brooches and dinner jackets and, and put that sort of retro look together. And, yeah. um, and it, was, it was basically, it was the year that I really discovered old stuff, you know, old culture, mm-hmm. meaning stuff like James Dean and Oscar Wilde, both Morrissey approved, obviously, and Natalie Wood films and Motown and Eddie Cochran and T-Rex and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was financing this by, by working at Barry Island Butlins. Um, yeah, I was, I was doing a summer job selling seafood. Um, and uh, I I couldn't even steal any of it because I just turned vegetarian. No, uh, yeah, no. Was, I know. Um, and um, it it was a time of um, ankle bracelets and rah rah skirts and choose life t shirts. That's how I remember Butlins. But in my case, Frankie say I'm the unemployed in big letters, which <laughs> yes. I thought I thought was amazing. But right, my uniform as a seafood seller was a very uncool white coat and trilby and a blue pinstriped apron over the top of that <laughs> oh, sexy right and um yeah and, right and i i was wearing that um the previous summer doing the same job when i had my first kiss right um it was Whoa. it was it was over the seafood trolley um <laughs> i know already i'm painting quite a scenario here um with a girl called steph from basingstoke um and it was probably to the sounds of Jerry and the Pacemakers performing live in the background because it was a festival of the 60s weekender. Um, and I remember her mouth tasting of cigarette smoke. And to this day, I have a profound erotic association with ashtrays because of that. Um, <laughs> oh, fucking hell. So, I mean, f- for me to have waited till the age of 16 before kissing anyone shows what a uh, late developer I was. I was very mm. naive. So t- to put in context how naive I was... Um, I remember a load of blokes from the valleys turned up in the um, in the sort of cabaret bar at Butlins, and I was walking around with this basket trying to sell seafood to them, and they all asked, "Oi, mate, have you got crabs?" And, um, yes, and, I, and one, I, have yes. I told you this one before? Because I, I, I no, 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 you haven't. But I, I began telling them that I had crab sticks, and they were already <laughs> falling about laughing uh, before I could get my answer out. And I didn't know. I didn't understand why that was funny. I didn't get it. No, that's how how naive I was. So only this year, eighty five, Steph from Basingstoke turned up again, and <gasps> um, yeah, and one night after I'd finished my shift, um, I met up with her in the Butlins disco, and um, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, Hey, listen, exciting times. And um, yeah. my, my main memory is that we had a slow dance to Careless Whisper by George Michael. Oh. Right? And the problem was that I was wearing a pair of fashionable pleated trousers. And um, when our bodies parted, I was visibly showing my enjoyment. Um, shall we say? Oh, no. In, yeah, oh, she in, felt your cockle. In what fans <laughs> of Kirby Enthusiasm will know as a pants tent. And um, I, I turned, I turned up, so uh, that was uh, that's really vividly stayed with me. I, I turned up the next night hoping to run into her again, but um, you know what did I see? Uh, the treacherous Steph from Basingstoke snogging someone else, and that, oh. yeah, that was the end of that. But to be fair, I did. Still, You're never going to dance again, are you? Now, I'm never going to dance. That. <laughs> guilty pleated trousers I got no rhythm Um, (laughs) uh, but to be fair to her I did stink of cockles probably Um, the the other the other big the other big development in my life was that I'd become a music journalist um 
I, I think oh. I've mentioned this before, but the previous year in 84, I'd written a letter of complaint to the Barry District News, moaning that there's nothing for young people, and they, they wrote back to offer me my, my own column. So for two years, I was writing this singles reviews column called Simon Says, and you'll be delighted to hear that I've found a scrapbook containing wow. these columns, oh. uh, including, yeah, including several of the singles we'll be talking about in this episode. Oh, fantastic. Which I shall refer to as we go through and compare my opinions now with my opinions then. That's, oh. There's, there's something, there's something uh, really important about Simon's priapic <laughs> memory style. Um, in the, what he said earlier about this was the year that I started investigating stuff that was old. Um, no, that, no, no, going? sorry, that, that sounds wrong. But I mean, what we'll see later, I think, in a lot of the things on this episode is precisely that, that an awful lot of bands and an awful lot of artists in 85 were kind of disgusted with 85 and had started exploring what was old yes. in a big, big mm, way. Yes. And, and it's a kind of common thread that runs through 85, a kind of horror with what's going on and a desire to disappear into the past. Yeah, definitely. I can say that as yeah. well. I mean, I was, I just finished sixth form and failed all my O-levels again. I was thinking about, well, what do I do now? Do I go on the dole or do I have another go at failing my O-levels? <laughs> uh, so I was just, yeah, I was just, aim- I was aimless, disaffected youth, personified. Um, possibly because I was skint, I'd started buying up old records as well. I used to go to this mm. place called Rob's Records, which still exists in Nottingham, and it was yeah. it was just like a vinyl landslide. Mm. And you'd go through it, and you'd be able to pick up amazing shit for for twenty p. And I don't, you know, I'd already bought. I remember when the twelve inch release of Sex Machine and Get on the Good Foot had come out. I think it was a year before. So I was full into James Brown at the time, mm. and just getting into Sly and the Family Stone. And just buying loads of old shit. I mean, uh, not interested in hip hop just yet. Yeah. So yeah, just old, old shit all the way for me. For for me, it was similar in that my, my, you know I got my pop from my sister really, and, mm. and in '84 she was a full-on Wham fan, mm. and she was you know practicing dance routines to Wham records with her mates in the front room. But by '85 she changed and she started bringing home records by the Velvet Underground and the Doors and all these other people, mm. and consequently that's what I started exploring as well. I think Wham's all over the place, isn't it? Just as well you didn't have a slow dance with a Queen to careless whisper, <laughs> eh, Simon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you'd have felt my scepter and orb then, no off with Yeah, off with his head. <laughs> then you would need a Tipex cock. <laughs> but, oh, the other thing I want to chuck in, I'd start going to gigs. I think, not this week, but I think the week after, I went to see the Redskins and the Three Johns at the oh, garage in, yes. in Nottingham. Yeah, so I'm very um, jealous you saw the Redskins, I never did. I saw them loads of times. Oh. Redskins played Nottingham every fucking other week at yeah. one point. It was them and them and New Model Army. Yeah. New Model Army seemed to be at Rock City all the fucking time. Yeah, pretty much lived there, I think, yeah. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One has run Play School, Chock-A-Block, the ladies' semi-finals from Wimbledon, then Gran, Stop, Go, Lasse, John Craven's News Round, a repeat of Dr. Kildare, then the 6 o'clock news, regional news in your area, then EastEnders and Tomorrow's World at Large, where Judith Ann joins the Met Office for the day and tries to predict tomorrow's weather. Top of the Pops is on at 7.55. What the fuck is that all about? 7.55? Yeah, that's not right. That's too late. It's summer, though. You know, everyone's had a late tea. Mm. BBC Two has pages from CFAX until 4pm and then they take over the Wimbledon feed into the early evening. 
At the moment, they're running Victoria Comes West, a documentary about the first year of a Russian musical genius who's defected. ICV has broadcast Alfie Atkins, Mooncat, Scarecrow and Mrs King, Take the High Road, Sons and Daughters, Inspector Gadget, Dramarama, The Not Quite Blockbusters Quiz Connections, then the news at 5.45, Crossroads, Emmerdale Farm and Nanette Newman and Kenneth Williams in the quiz show Who's Baby? While Channel 4 has transmitted Abbott and Costello meets the mummy, Two divorced Canadian women in the magazine show Female Focus, then Television Scrabble, a repeat of The Winds of War, and they're just finishing Channel 4 News. Mention a moon cat there really brought it back to me that obviously I was too old for kids' TV, but I used to come home from school. You're never too old for kids' TV, Simon. <laughs> but I'd come home and switch the telly on. I remember Beryl Reed um, looking as if, you know, she'd been at the Sherry's. So, I'm sorry, yeah. I, you know, I don't want to sort of slander her memory, but she always looked pissed on that show. Yeah. <laughs> Fair play to her, you know. Bless her. <laughs> Whose baby? Wow, I've forgotten about that. And and I remember they ran out of babies, really, of people yeah, who were directly yeah. related. So it ended up with being like, I remember an episode where Phil Linnett turned up because he was related to Leslie Crowther or something. That's right, like that. yes. Yeah. Leslie Crowther was his father-in-law. Yeah. Oh, right, I see. Yeah. Of course, Whose Baby Now is known as the Jeremy Kyle Show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then, Pop Craig's youngsters, it's time to go way back to July of 1985. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget... They've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. BBC One, it's time for Top of the Pops. Your hosts this week are... Simon Bates who we've already covered in chart music number eight. At this moment, he's on Radio 1 at 10am with Simon Bates' golden hour as the Radio 1 Roadshow is in full swing. Today, they've been at the Picky Pool Arena in Bangor with Gary Davis. Your other host. Born in Portsmouth in 1951, Richard Skinner was a journalism student who worked at the local paper before joining BBC Radio Solent in 1971 as a newsreader and the host of the local pop show, Beat and Track. What do you think of that one, Simon? That's a good one, isn't it? Jesus, I thought Simon Says was bad. <laughs> in 1973, he joined Radio 1 as the first presenter of their new strand, Newsbeat, a position he held until 1980. One of his last tasks in this role was to ring up Paul McCartney in the early hours of December the 9th of that year to break the news to him that John Lennon had been shot. It wasn't a prank call, it actually happened. Just want to stress <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a drag. In 1981, he presented the Saturday afternoon slot Rock On and the Friday night review programme Round Table. He also became one of the hosts of Whistle Test in 1983 and then became the presenter of the Top 40 show, making him the only person to present that, Whistle Test and Top of the Pops. Not only was he the interviewer when Bob Geldof broke the news that he was organising the recording of Do They Know It's Christmas, he's also getting ready to be the opening presenter of Live Aid. So yeah, important man. What do we remember about these two? Well... 
thing with Richard Skinner is you can really tell that he comes from a journalist uh, journalism background rather than yeah. mm. rather than that kind of uh, pirate radio Emperor Roscoe hey everybody Mr. Personality mm. kind of thing because he was deeply boring and mm. uh, I suppose in some ways you might say that kind of default voice is preferable to some of the egotistical excesses of you know DLT or whatever um, but yeah. the thing with both Skinner and Bates is that they're both men who cannot ever possibly have been young they they seem to arrive no. <laughs> they seem to arrive into the world age 30 which in those days meant 50 and um yes skinner yeah skinner's merely boring but there's some something and we've talked about it before but there's something yes. act, actively unpleasant about Bates. <laughs> and um mm. they both have the hair the, the hair partings and glasses and the smart casual clothing of maths teachers going to the pub for a quick pint at the end of friday afternoon yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's kind of nothing to say about Skinner. He's so dull. Um, except those shades that he's wearing in this episode, are they kind of like a piss take of Bates? Is that what he's trying to do? I, I couldn't I quite tell. I hope so. Um, God, I hope so. But, I, mean, the I thing just is, think that they're, you know, they're, they're sort of bosom buddies. They're soulmates like uh, Alan Partridge mm. and Dan, Dan, Dan in that episode. Yeah. You know, they, they just converged without realising it, that they're wearing the same stuff. and just Like you know. Barry and Moxie in uh, Of Vida's Own Pet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like friends by default. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simply because no one else wants to knock about with him. Bates get Bates gets for me more sinister as time goes on. It's kind of at the <laughs> at the time I actually think he had a voice that in a way comforted me. It was it, 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 it's a professional voice. I mean, for me, Bates was never a big part of my radio listing. It was more of a school holidays thing because I always yeah. missed his show. Obviously, um, yeah. I remember in eighty 80- illness. Yes, yes, and, and I remember. I remember sort of in eighty five. It was kind of my first apprehension that the general public and the man in the street was a cunt. You know, because um, <laughs> they had a poll in eighty five. Because I remember listening to our tune because of the summer holidays and just being horrified mm. by it. And I remember they had a poll as to whether to get rid of it or not, and it was. Overwhelmingly, right. the public wanted to wanted to keep it, um, but you know, uh, as time goes on, you find out more about Bates. You realise he was a bit of a shit stir and a bit of a troublemaker at Radio One. Yes, and you know, he's got a bit of a stormy career. In the, you know, he's one of those one people who quits a radio station on air. Do you know what I mean? Because he quit mm. Radio Devon on air, um, for, and, and he reminds me physically. And this is quite a Midlands orientated thing, but he reminds me physically and in the sense that he wears kind of estate agent's gross aviator reactor light type shades of, mm. uh, do you remember uh, I don't know whether he was an East Midlands thing or West Midlands thing but Alan Towers used yes. to yeah he Alan used, Towers, he used yes. to read the news yes. on the on the mid, on, on Midlands today and and you know he yes. qu- he famously quit on Midlands today um, mm. with the line the BBC used to be run by giants now it's run by pygmies with checkbooks and yeah. yeah, he reminded me um, massively of him. But of course, Simon Bates at this time for me was more prevalent in my in my life as um, the deliverer of those uh, VSC warnings before videos. Of course, um, yes. talking about you know the sexual swear words you might you might see in, a, in an eighteen certificate film, and he always yes. seemed faintly disapproving that you were watching an eighteen film yes. <laughs> when delivering those things. So that's my, I mean that's my most powerful powerful memory of Bates as, as, uh, I didn't think he was creepy at the time because he's got one of those comfortable professional radio voices but the further I get away 
from that time, you realise he really is Partridge. I mean, he really is um, mm. one of the bases for all those Smashy and Nicey and Partridge characters. I've got to say, I do like a good quitting on air, though. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. think it depends who's doing it, but if you listen to Danny Baker quitting uh, BBC Radio London um, a few years ago, mm. uh, and it's out there on YouTube, it is extraordinary. Mm. It's just beautiful to listen to. Um, I can imagine that I didn't hear Bates's uh, um, on-air uh, resignation, but I can imagine it was done with a lot less panache and style. Absolutely. I mean, there's odd little facts about Bates, isn't there? That he was an artificial inseminator when he was in uh, New yes. Zealand. Yes, and we, also we, didn't, we mentioned that. Oh, yes. did you? And, and also, I of didn't course we did. Sorry. Fucking hell, come on, man. How can we not mention that? <laughs> but he's also on that Ferry Aid record, isn't he? I didn't know oh, that. Yes. And he wrote a thriller. He wrote a book. He wrote a thriller when he was destitute. He says he wrote a thriller, but I can't find it on Amazon. I bet it's appalling. How thrilling is Simon Bates' idea of a thriller mm. going to be, let's face it? It's an action-packed show, too. We've got Tears for Fears, The Damned, Fine Young Cannibals and Sister Slayer. And Dead or Alive over here with their new single, Into Deep. So, Bates in a cream geography teacher jacket, and Skinner, in an open-necked, rolled-up blue shirt, are both wearing reactor-like repeat sunglasses, making them look a bit like middle European sex tourists. <laughs> After consulting their notes to tell us who's on tonight, they point at the opening act, Dead or Alive with In Too Deep. Formed in Liverpool in 1980, Dead or Alive were fronted by Pete Burns, a former member of the Mystery Girls with Julian Cope and Pete Wyler, who played one gig in 1977. Originally called Nightmares on Wax and adopting a gothic post-punk sound, Burns changed their name to Dead or Alive and recorded a string of singles which registered on the indie charts throughout the early 80s, leading them to sign to Epic Records in 1983. By this time, they had Wayne Hussey as guitarist, they were starting to dip a toe into the then-new genre of high energy, and Burns was starting to be portrayed in the music press as Boy George's evil sister. <laughs> After Hussey left to form the mission, they went full-on dance and first entered the top 40 with a cover of That's The Way I Like It, which got to number 22 in March of 1984. Later that year, though, they teamed up with Stock Aitken and Waterman and put out You Spin Me Round Like a Record, which got to number one for two weeks in March of this year. This is the follow-up to Lover Come Back to Me, which got to number 11 in April of this year, is the third release from the LP Youth Quake, and it's up this week from number 34 to number 19. Oh, and the 12-inch version of this song is known as the Off Your Mong Mix. Yes, it is. <laughs> Pete Burns, we've mentioned him before, haven't we, chaps? He's, uh, yeah, I think, I think it was you, Simon, or possibly Neil, that mentioned him as the last weird one standing at this point. Yeah, the last of the freaks, pretty much. I mean, along with Martin Deadville of Zig Zig Sputnik, um, Pete mm. Burns was the last of those glorious '80s weirdos who was allowed to become a pop star before mm. before the clampdown really kicked in and dragged us into this dismal conformist world of Curiosity Killed a Cat and Johnny Hates Jazz yeah. and Brother Beyond and Rick Astley and all that. So yeah, he's one of the last great 80s freaks and last of the sort of flamboyant gender-bending pop stars to break through before pop 
got boring again. Um, in my Simon Says column, uh, which I uh, found on a bit of yellowing old Barry and District newspaper, um, not reviewing this single, but reviewing another one, I described him as this year's lovable bisexual. <laughs> the thing is, uh, he was bisexual and he was androgynous in his appearance. But and this was obviously known at the time. Yeah, it, I, in I Barry so, anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, but the thing is, for all his androgyny, I don't think he was ever effeminate. I think there's a difference. Yeah. I think he was very masculine in his voice and in his persona. He was quite sort of yeah. He had a sort of predatory lion-like quality to hit his voice and, and his stage persona, and yes. he was kind of unapologetic. He he didn't take any nonsense from anyone. You wouldn't mess no. with him. Um, mm. John John Klein of the Banshees once showed me um, the scar from when he got into a fight with Pete Burns and Burns has stamped on his head in stilettos. No! Uh, yes, it's horrible. It's just like little three-pronged scar on his on his head that he showed me. Um, Shit. I know. And um, yeah, you wouldn't mess. And um, customers in Probe Records in Liverpool of course famously where he used to work were terrified of Pete yes. Burns because of his, his wit and his sharp tongue. Um, and I've, I've got a strange personal connection to Pete Burns because um, two reasons. When this record came out... I had a slow dance with George <laughs> Michael. <laughs> you can laugh, but it's nearly that close. <laughs> there are two things. Cushions. <laughs> there are two things. First of all, my on-again, off-again girlfriend of the time, not treacherous Steph, um, yeah. was obsessed with him and had his posters on her bedroom wall. But... My current girlfriend, and she just walked through when I was doing the last bit, is <laughs> is actually Pete Burns' cousin. Wow. Um, no! Yes. Um, yes. Good uh, Lord. Yes. Um, and uh, she, she may well be listening upstairs right now. Um, so it's funny how these things come around and how the, the facial features of Pete Burns, one way or another, have been quite present in my life. What she told you about Pete Burns then? Come on. Well, just that it was amazing growing up, because she's a lot younger than him, but growing up mm. in, in a family where you had somebody like that to look up to, this kind of freakish icon of, of individualism, yeah. uh, which I which I can totally imagine. And, um, yeah. Uh, I, I, they, what was they, it like at Christmas dues? <laughs> I don't know about that, but they, they've, they, <laughs> they, they've definitely got um, similarities in, in dress sense, let's say that. So, yeah. <laughs> you, you Find out, Simon. So um, this song, anyway, right? Um, it's not mm. it's not one of Dead or Alive's best, but um, it's it's on the I album. I think it's there. I think it's, it's the best song. I do love you? it. Every time that we do chart music, there's always one song that just yanks me out. Yeah. Of the you know just reaches its hand out of the speakers and just grabs me by the neck and goes, "Listen to me over and over and over again." And it could be a good song, and it or it could be a bad song, and it. For this episode, it was this song that I just couldn't help but listen to over and over and over. And I just thought, no, I like it. Up, yeah. This is good 80s. And mm. I think, to be honest with you, I was never asked about You Spin Me Round. Never liked really? it. No, Whoa. it was a bit of a Barry Noble's Astoria song to me. <laughs> but but just with a weird singer. I, I could see very little difference between this and all the other rubbish that my sister would go and dance to. And That's almost as controversial as me saying I wasn't bothered about Heart of Glass by Blondie. Yeah, episode, well, that's you know. all right. We've all got it We've all got it in yeah. us to be a bit controversial every now and again, Simon. It's just how it is. But this song, I just think this is good 80s, particularly yeah. 1985, good 80s. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 on Youthquake, which um, mm. a word which, of course, has entered the Oxford English Dictionary this year for unconnected reasons. Um, but in, the way I look at it is in much the same way that Trevor Horn used the lexicon of love by ABC as a kind of showcase for his yeah. abilities. Stock Cake in Waterman used Youthquake by Dead or Alive as their 
calling card. And and at this point, Stockhake and Waterman hadn't yet become a completely horrific force in pop. No. Um, there's there is this really kind of enjoyable, shuddering, shimmering electro pop sound all over that album. Mm. And and I even though all right, you don't like you spin me around, but I I'm saying that because there were four singles released from it, and Into Deep is the best of the post you spin me round releases yeah. from it. And and um, the uh, the Offia Mong mix, which you you mentioned, is uh, is brilliant. Actually, it's an absolute right. joy. I've not heard um, it yet. I, I, I seriously check it out. Um, I, I wrote a roundup of the best of Dead or Alive um, after Pete died last year for the Guardian, and I described it as the sound of poured sunlight. So there you go. Oh, check it out. Beautiful Offia Mong mix is brilliant. The thing is, spin me round. I think it dominated my perception of Dead or Alive at the time because mentally like yeah. most listeners they were the spin me round hit makers you know and yes. the oddity of the sound of that record it almost had a novelty status that record great though I think that record is mentally mm. I would have put it in the same place at the time and I remember doing so as um, you think you're a man by divine because yeah. of yeah. that Stott Aitken Waterman sound um, so I wasn't listening much to Dead or Alive in, in 85 but I was constantly reading pete burns in smash hits just yes. being hilarious um you know describing lionel richie's having an ironing board for a chin and calling <laughs> calling yeah. helen terry a crowd yes and, and, and stuff like that and i remember there was a great feature in in smash it's very close actually to this singles release called may the best man win and it was basically mm. boy george marilyn um pete burns <laughs> and tasty tim i think just slagging each other off. Um, Boy George <laughs> saying, um, Pete Burns and Marilyn are definitely in my shadow. There's another quote really. I think Pete Burns had just come out with the, the line about him wanting to have a night with 65 sailors or something. Mm. And um, uh, Boy George said, It's one thing being honest, it's another being disgusting. Um, uh, the, the, I think that, uh, the thing is with Pete and, and Boy George, and I do think Boy George was getting delu- messianic delusions at the time. They were clearly so close in a way and so similar yeah. in a way. Um, and it, it's sweet how they kind of came back together. But that rivalry yeah. between Pete and, and uh, Boy, Boy George was a really entertaining, constant thing. Um, in the music press and Pete just always yeah. looked amazing um, I mean I distinctly remember the double page spread where the lyrics for this song were in smash hits and the lyrics were just you know shoved to the corner and the whole thing was dominated by Pete's yeah. image because he, he just looked, yes. looked so great and always gave such good quotes See, I remember him describing I still remember him describing Wham as two toothpaste ads with microphones and, and <laughs> things like that I, I just always thought he was a I wasn't listening to him much, but I was massively entertained by him. The thing is, yeah, Neil's right. He, uh, Pete did look amazing. And I think he looked amazing twice because everyone says, oh, it's tragic how he ruined that beautiful face with plastic surgery. Nah. I think he looked amazing when uh, mm. he, he had all that work done. Uh, he was just extraordinary. Yeah. He was this kind of self-created entity. And um, yeah. I, I, I really don't see it as, as any kind of tragedy. The tragedy is is what happened to him medically that, you know, mm. yeah. uh, it, it went wrong and he ended up on all kinds of painkillers and uh, cause him great sort of you know um ill health but um i thought he looked phenomenal and i'm i'm all in favor of body mods you know it's your body you only live once do what you want with it and exactly um, yeah and and can we all agree by the way i think he's the best um, reality tv oh, uh, star yeah, ever yeah, um yeah. celebrity big brother I, i've never seen a better one he was absolutely hilarious yeah but you know the the performance on top of the pops i mean obviously they've had a uh they've got a new set and everything and there's lots of squiggly neon knocking about it's quite spacious isn't it it is and it's a bit 
tame in a way. The mm. band are all wearing success coats, aren't they? They've all got yes, those, they are. Yes, they, they've got those very long jackets, which you know, when bands had a few quid in the bank, they always seem to get around that time. <laughs> I, I think there's a desire in the performance after the slight artifice of, of uh, "You Spin Me Round" to prove that they can do it live. It couldn't be more '80s in terms of the instruments that they're playing. Those horrible headless guitars mm, and, those, yeah. and those hexagonal old East Ender drums. Yeah, those those hexagonal <laughs> old school satellite dish drums. But, um, yeah. you know, th- there's, there was a live advert, actually, in that, that week's Smash Hits for the Dead or Alive Youthquake tour, where it says, it's your last chance to see the band they said couldn't play live. So oh, clearly yeah. that had been said a lot about Dead or Alive, that they were just kind of, mm. you know, a confected thing and they couldn't actually yeah. do it live. And, and there's a desire here, I think, in this performance to calm things down a little bit and prove that they are a proper band. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, the, and the really weird thing is... With the performances we're going to see tonight, there's a lot of space on the stage, but also a lot of darkness. Mm. Um, you know, and the cans of the band are, you know, we can put, we can pick out their hairstyles and what they're wearing, but we we don't really see them that well, do we? No. I mean, there's a lot of really bad mullets and uh, and success coats, uh, <laughs> as Simon pointed out. But there is, but there is, you know, we we all kind of like they are varying alarmingly towards the white pajama look aren't they i guess so and i maybe yeah. because he was such a transgressive freaky character mm. there's almost a sort of a desire to not scare the horses too much you know once he's finally broken through and had this massive number one hit it's like mm. okay well let's try and uh, stay on this horse for as long as we can before people uh find us out as being these you know uh degenerates mm. i don't know yeah. um wasn't there some comparison that that you you uh, come across of what pete looks like yes well i've just thought well with his kind of like his liony hairstyle and his eye patch it's i it just occurred to me that he looks like a like the the bastard son of Rory and Boots off Animal Quackers. <laughs> he's got he's got Rory's hair and he's got Boots as eye patch. That's a and, niche and, reference, but Google Images, yeah, kids. It know. really is, yeah, yeah. To the to the two people out there who got that, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Thanks for staying with us. Can I just say one one more thing about this performance? I mean, I could say it uh, about any uh, bit of this show, but the audience, right? I'm sorry, but I want them all to die, all of them. They're horrible yeah. glitter boaters balloons mm. jumpers pushed up to the elbow mm. they're just Ugh. oh they they're so boring and yeah. yes it's oh well we, we can get on to why they were boring and, and why culture had gone that way but i just wanted to flag that up already that in in this very first clip i'm like oh god what a horrible audience and you can't really yeah. see their faces you just see a kind of sea of three-quarter length jackets and and sort of subversion as wearing a sleeveless T-shirt. It, it, it's it's a horrible audience, isn't it? So the following week, Into Deep jumped five places to number 14, its highest position. The follow-up, My Heart Goes Bang, Get Me to the Doctor, only got to number 23 in October of this year, and they hung it out as a band all the way to 2011. Alas, Pete Burns died in 2016.
up to date, Dead or Alive are number 19 this week. Up to number 12 and filmed at the Montreux Pop Festival. Here come Tears for Fears. Head over heels. who looks strangely like Barry Manilow when he looks directly at the camera, introduces Head Over Heels by Tears for Fears. We've already covered Tears for Fears in chart music number 16, so we'll just say that since we last met them in December of 1983, they got to number 5 over here with Shout, allowed the introduction of their song The Hurting to be sampled on Do They Know It's Christmas, and released the LP Songs from the Big Chair, which is currently number 9 in the LP charts. This is the follow-up to Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which got to number 2 in April of this year, was held off number 1 by We Are the World by USA for Africa, but it got to number one for two weeks in America. And it's up this week from number 14 to number 12. And as Skinner points out, this is a recording of their live performance of the song in Montreux, which doesn't sound all that live to me. Mm. Strokey chin. I mean, even the fact that it's taking place in Montreux, it's just... It just says everything mm. about the rise of this new pop aristocracy that, you know, we're supposed to watch them playing yeah. to this audience of um, incredibly privileged, you know, the rich kids of the, of the Vaux Canton raised on Nazi gold, yeah. spending, you know, 20 yeah. sw- Swiss francs on a small bottle of, of horrible beer and, and, and shouting woo yeah. at these fucking Colgate-faced, toothy, boring bastards in front of them. <laughs> Yeah. Where's the stupid with a flare gun when you need him, eh? You know what? It's, it's been a bit of a revelation to me doing these podcasts because I thought I quite liked Tears for Fears. But, but, but oh, no, man, it's, I'm right. sorry. It's, it's good to find these things out. And uh, when I actually have to sit and watch them and, and analyse what they're about, I, I'm finding I'm kind of veering towards hating them. Oh. I'm getting close to that. I mean, I've I've not changed my opinion at all, and I still wouldn't eat a sandwich made by these people at all. Um, And they look awful. Um, That yellow fucking shirt he's got on, um, apparently he had four of those yellow shirts. um, Really? Yes. What you you can hear here is that they're being anthemic, and being anthemic Mm. in this way is nearly always fucking horrible. For me, it's analogous to the kind of moves that Simple Minds Mm. were making at the same time. The big sing-along, the stadium-directed thing. It's a calculated attempt to crack into America. Um, Of course, all their talking interviews at the time is about how it's all about good songs, but this is anti-pop music. Yeah, and um, Mm. to me, it's like a headache in musical form. That's what I kept thinking. It's that particular kind of headache when it's Sunday morning and your mum is steaming the veg, but she hasn't opened the windows. And do you know what I mean? It's just kind of real. Head- and it goes, you know, the, the chorus goes, something happens and I'm head over heels. But have you ever heard of a song sound less giddy? It doesn't sound giddy at all. Yeah. yeah. And oh, by the way, no, you mentioned no. headless basses in the dead of life. Kurt Smith's headless bass is just so, I don't know. It's, there's some, if, if an instrument can be smug, that instrument is smug. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I'm wondering if they ever bequeathed us anything good. And and the weird thing is, I really liked the 90s indie band Manson, M A N S U N, that is. And yeah. um, they're the only band I can think of who really, really sound like Tears for Fears. And um, somehow that, that works. I'm fine with it. But Tears for Fears themselves, I, I. Right, here's what I reckon. If 
if they were your, if if Tears for Fears were your favorite band, you were doing the eighties wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah and, definitely. And it, it, it's a, it's an unpleasantness that's really cemented by the fact it's from Montreux as well. Yeah. Because Montreux, mm. whenever it appeared, you know, Montreux Jazz Festival, Montreux Pop Festival, it always they always said this as if we were supposed to know what the fuck those things were. Yeah. yeah. And, and these things. Why was it always so bloody dark in Montrose pop festivals and jazz festivals? Yeah. Dark stage, dark audience, and it just yeah. I was always always thought the Montrose pop festival seemed scary and horrible, and not something I wanted to go to. Well, when I was a kid, I, I thought it was Montrose in Scotland <laughs> because you know because of the football results. Well, if we're going to be mm. pedantic, it's Montreux, not Montrose, Mo- not not Montreux. But anyway, yeah. Again, top of the pops. It's already 1985, and they're desperate to steer away from videos, aren't they? They don't like the idea of videos being on for some bizarre reason. Because, you know, the video of this, I actually bothered to look at it. And it's, to be honest with you, much rather than poncing about in Montreux than uh, than, than the video. Because yeah. it's just them arsing about in a big library with a, with a monkey. Which sounds about ten times more interesting than it actually right. is. There's there's an instance of something that I absolutely fucking hated in eighties videos, which were the outtakes and the bloopers being kept in to show, hey, look at us, we're just regular guys like yeah, yeah. you know, like everyone else, having a bit of a laugh and making some mistakes. It's like, oh fuck off. <laughs> one of their um one of the one of the keyboard players or something, he uh, has to catch a book and he misses it and they show him missing it about four times. Mm-hmm. And it's like, fucking hell, here we are, 1985. We're watching someone being unable to catch a fucking book that <laughs> someone's thrown at him. Great, thanks. The, the, I think that they're doing it for Montreux. They're getting this bit of footage. They're still trying to resist, I think, the rise of MTV, in a sense. They haven't yeah. totally surrendered to it like they do. Like, by the time we get to 89, 90, there's episodes yeah. of Top of the Pops where there's, like, you know, five full-length videos basically being shown. Um, yeah. At this stage, they're still trying to resist and cling on, I guess, to what's unique about Top of the Pops. But via yeah. Montreux, or Montreux, it, that's, that's bullshit. Yeah. Well, it's a compromise, isn't it? Because we get shitload of video yeah. clips in the countdown, but they're very brief. So the following week, Head Over Heels stayed at number 12. Ha <laughs> ha, its highest position. <laughs> the follow-up, Suffer the Children, only got to number 52 in September of this year, and their chart career petered out until the re-recorded Everybody Wants to Run the World mm. got to number five in June of 1986. Yeah, another thing to thank Bob Geldof for there. This is a band that's been together for nine years. It's the damned over here. They're back in the charts with the shadow of love. Flanked by the two most 80s-looking women ever, 
or white skirts and blonde streaks, <laughs> introduces a band who he points out have been together for nine years, The Damned with The Shadow of Love. Formed in London in 1976, The Damned are credited with releasing the first punk rock single in October of 1976, but they didn't make an impression on the charts until May of 1979 when Love Song got to number 20. They hung around throughout the early 80s, and when original member Captain Sensible left to go officially solo in 1984, the band were left to pursue a more gothic image. This is the follow-up to Grimly Fiendish, which was their first top 40 single in six years when it got to number 21 in April of this year, and it's up this week from number 29 to number 25. Let's talk about them later, but let's let's talk about them women, because you could uh, seriously, you could not get more 80s women. They're very shock attack. <laughs> Very, yeah, very and, and attack, you yes. know, to my mind, of the year, you know, in 1985, they would have been dismissed as, as Sharon's. Yeah, I'm afraid they remind me very distinctly of a girl who was in my school, who was in the sixth form with my sister at the time, called Debbie Ashby, who no! became sort of no. Oh yeah, Debbie Ashby went to my, my school. My God, uh, uh, notorious uh, pastry model and other things, you know. Really? No, 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 the, the, no, no, don't move on, Neil. Let's go, let's go, let's go back there. Because remember, that there was that infamous appearance she did mm. when she's with Mad Lizzie, and uh, they put her into a uh, they put her into a leotard that was about two sizes too tight, <laughs> and she was obviously very uncomfortable about it. I felt really sorry for her as I furiously <laughs> masturbated before going off to school. Sorry, it had to be said. <laughs> she got expelled from my school for, you know, what she did. And um, I remember the day after she got expelled. What did she do, Neil? Um, well, she appeared in various porno- pornographic publications. But the thing that got her expelled was the page three thing, I think. With her mum. And she was underage to do that, I think. But um, I remember the day after, in, in the Coventry Evening Telegraph, there was a great photo of her outside my school, next to the sign, <laughs> wearing a kind of sexy mortarboard and black gown get-up. <laughs> you know, do, doing the typical local paper face of just kind of looking yeah. a bit shocked. Um, but it was odd, because she brought a bit of celebrity to Coventry that we were lacking at that time. Because I remember there was a terrible nightclub in Cov called Park Lane. Mm. Um, and she went there when she was dating Tony Curtis. Um, Tony Curtis went out with Debbie Ashby. Uh, So even though I wasn't there, I was far too young, it astonishes me that in that poxy horrible nightclub, Park Lane in Coventry, Tony Curtis would have been in there in in, in 1985 with with Debbie Ashby. But yeah, I was given big Debbie Ashby flashbacks by those two ladies. Damn. Damn. Anyone, Anyone of that ilk at your school, Simon? No. Oh man! The nearest I can get to that there was a, there was a girl in my class at comprehensive school who I saw about nine years later on the cover of the News of the World in stockings and suspenders, riding the former Chelsea footballer Alan Hudson around like a horse. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, and I actually ran into her earlier this year, and we had a we had a good old discussion about it. She looked fucking amazing. So wow. yeah, r- big up to her. Fame then for people that were in your school was just fucking amazing. We had a kid mm. who you might remember. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but there was a Bachelor Soup advert um, <laughs> no, where yeah. it was set. No, it was set in a medieval banquet, and you might not remember it. But the, this kid, he was in that advert, and he had a line. Actually, he said no. so much nicer in this advert and wow. we were constantly fucking asking how much did you get paid? How much did yeah. you get paid? And the cunt, he always said enough. Yeah. Um, uh, wanker 
<laughs> Shall we talk about the damned now, then? Yeah. yeah, well, funnily enough, talking about people from your town, two oh. of the damned uh, in this lineup were from Barry. Oh! Yeah, yeah. Um, Bryn Merrick and Roman Jug um, uh, from, from, from that mid 80s lineup were from Barry. And uh, it was really exciting because I can remember uh, vividly being um, in the piss stinking um, BT uh, phone box um, around the corner because we did have a phone. Um, and uh, seeing one of them walk past, it's like, oh my god, one of the damned just walked past. Uh, so yeah, um, any that that's as good as it got in Barry yeah. in, in the, the mid eighties. Any kind of connection to real pop music. And were, were they covered in uh, in your local newspaper, Simon? They were. Um, I've uh, one of the uh, cuttings I've got here. There's a, a lovely big photo of them saying that they're uh, going on tour and their tour includes Cardiff. And I really just put it in there to mention that you know Bryn Merrick was from Barry. Uh. So yeah, full of local pride I was at that. But this is shit, isn't it? This song. Well, it's not really a song, is it? What it is? No. It's the equivalent of mm. of a dad trying to scare a child by cupping his hands and doing <laughs> ghost story sound effects. Whoa, that thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it it did remind me a lot of Camouflage by Stone Ridgeway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I quite mm. like. Which obviously came afterwards, so you know they mm. they ripped it, he ripped them off. I do quite like that kind of gothic period of the damned, but this is kind of goth mm. by numbers. Um, there were there were two mates of mine uh, called Screwy and Pete, um, who were massive damned fans, and I always associate the damned with them. They were the ones I've mentioned in previous podcasts. Uh, uh, one of my mates' um, dad had a, a speedboat, and we used to use yes. the speedboat fuel for making Molotov cocktails. That was Pete of Screwy and Pete. So in the, in the very <laughs> Um, uh, uh, unlikely chance that one of them's listening, you know, hey guys. Um, but I remember um, just uh, always hanging around their houses and listening to Damned albums and smelling Damned albums because one of them called Strawberries, <laughs> they, they had a scratch and sniff album called Strawberries. Yeah. Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah, which is amazing. Um, I just think uh, Dave Vanian looks so fucking cool in this mm. uh, performance. Amazing mm. hair, mm. amazing clothes, that kind of Regency jacket and the um, frilly shirt and, and the, the Dickie Davis streak going through the hair. Um, yes. He just looks fucking amazing. I would love to look like that. Um, he does. Th- yeah, this is this is goth by numbers. And and I do think that the the uh, kind of ambience that Top of the Pops are trying to give it with the smoke and the green lights and all of that is somewhat undermined by the crowd members in their glittery boaters down yeah. the front. It kind of ruins it a little bit. Yeah. Simon, yeah. I have to ask, is Dave Vanian the patient zero of goth? <laughs> Is he the first goth? He might be, you know. It's him or Susan Because, you know, even in 1977, he's not that far removed from the kind of, like, the standard image of goth. He was going for that kind of thing, wasn't he? Sort of hammer horror thing, even in the Mm. 70s. Yeah, you've got a a fair point there. And when he got together with Patricia Morrison of the Sisters of Mercy, that made them the ultimate kind of king and queen of goth, the sort of goth's first couple. Mm. Valiant does look awesome here, I think. That duochrome bouffant he's got, like Elsa Lanchester, he looks fantastic. Um, but the weird thing about the damned is, as time's gone on, obviously I've gone back to the early stuff, mm. and the first album, the first damned album, is just one of the greatest yes. records ever damned, made damned, in damned, any damned, genre. Yeah. It's just fucking fantastic, fantastic record. But for me at the time, for, for me, the first memory of the damned is, of course, them doing video nasty yes, on, yes. on the young ones, and and that was that was the most powerful image I and had Vanian of the had damned. That look at that so, point, didn't he? Yeah. 
He did. He did massively. And, and, and what you can hear here is that because Captain Sensible's out and he's gone to pursue his pop career um, out of the picture, Dave Vanian is kind of dominating it, dominating the sound of the, the band with this gothabilly kind of rumble that they've got on and the songwriting mm. of that album. But for people of my age, I think, yeah, Nasty was the intro and the Phantasmagoria mm. album was the first damn thing we heard. Um, so that's what's going on. It's not a great song, but I like the kind of, I like the mm. sound of the song, but not what the yeah. song actually does. The gothabilly textures of it and the bass are fucking fantastic, but there's not actually a song behind it. I actually see Captain Sensible quite a lot around Brighton because he lives around here. Yeah. And um, he's just, uh, this is really not going anywhere, but he's just a brilliant bloke. Just mm. such a lovely man. Um, and yeah, like I said, that goes nowhere, but yeah, top bloke. <laughs> 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 and he's back in the dam now, of course. The dam's basically him, Vanian, and whoever else they can get in. Yeah. Nice. Should apply. (laughs) (laughs) So the following week, The Shadow of Love stayed at number 25 and sank from Trace. The follow-up, Is It a Dream, only got to number 34 in September of this year, but they hit the jackpot when the follow-up to that, Eloise, got to number three in February of 1986. Skinner and Bates are obsessed with the damned having been around for nine years, aren't they? Because yes, they, they are. Yes, they mention yeah. it straight yeah. afterwards as well. Yeah. It? it blows their mind that a punk band, a punk band, can last for nine years. Yeah, I mean, of course, those thrusting young books, they can't believe it, can they? They might think, well, we we might have a a, a a career just like that. Why are they doing top of the pops? I mean, you know, surely by now, mid 80s. Surely there's time for a new generation to come along, but who would it be? Well, uh, I think they say at the end that um, Janice Long and John Peel are doing the, the following yeah. episode, but Peel, Peel's not exactly a new generation mm. either, is he? No. I mean, oh, what have you got around that time? Woo Gary Davis, I suppose. Yeah, because, I mean, all the, all the Radio 1 lot, they pretty much clung in, didn't they, throughout the 80s? There was no shift in no. it. No, yeah. no. It was like, you know, um, <laughs> deeply ingrained shit on the toilet bowl of a public toilet. Yes. But, you know, no <laughs> amount of, of Swarfiga or Domestos would shit. <laughs> Those are the damned, it's 25. And it's not bad for a punk band to be together for nine years, is it? It's true. Okay, let's take a look at the top of the pops. Top 40. It's the way you tell it. At number 40, icing on the cake, Stephen Tintin Duffy. Jackie Graham's got a chart entry at 39, round and around. Number 38, an act of war, Elton John and Millie Jackson. 37, it's a new entry for the Eurythmics. There must be an angel playing with my heart. Walking on sunshine at number 36, Katrina and the Waves. At 35, out in the fields, Gary Moore and Phil Lynott. Bring it down, this insane thing, the Redskins at 34. Simply read, a chart entry at 33, money's too tight to mention. Five star, all fall down to number 32. Stings at 31, with if you love somebody, set them free. Up to number 30, She Sells Sanctuary, the cult. Propaganda and Duel at 29 this week. Up 10 places, Smuggler's Blues, Glenn Fry at 28. Highest new entry for the Style Council at 27, come to Milton Keynes. At 26, Live is Life, up 11 for Opus. The Damned and the Shadow of Love at 25. 19 is 24 for Paul Hardcastle. Duran Duran's A View to a Kill is at 23 this week. 
the Conway brothers turn it up to number 22. The purple poses at 21, Prince and Paisley Park. Number 20, King in a Catholic style, China Crisis. At 19 this week, In Too Deep by Dead or Alive. At 18, Obsession from Animotion. Huge leap of 19 places for Denise LaSalle, my toot toots at 17. Up to 16, Tomb of Memories, Paul Young. Scrittability, The Word Girl at 15. Up eight places, Life in One Day, Howard Jones at number 14. The commentators, 19, not out, a leap of 10 places to 13. And up to number 12, Head Over Heels, Tears for Fears. At number 11, Fine Young Cannibals. And here they are in the top of the pop studio with Johnny Come Home. on the chart rundown that the images of the band are flanked by these kind of clip art images of a saxophone and a guitar either yeah, side yes. it looks really cheap but just mm. you know always on top of the pops you get the, the here's what you could have won factor but just zooming yeah. through some of the photos that you see some great modern pop singles in the sort of lower reaches Tintin icing on the cake propaganda mm. duel, yes. and emotion obsession yes. and scritty politty the word girl but yeah. the one that gives me the biggest Proustian rush out of all that lower reaches of the charts Round and Round by Jackie Graham um, I remember I, I had a Facebook yeah. discussion about this uh, not long ago that I'd recently heard it after not hearing it for 30 odd years and I never really liked it at the time and I still don't but it's those records the kind of mediocre ones that yeah. are often the most evocative with the passing of time precisely because you haven't bothered to listen to them and they more than anything else allow you to kind of breathe the air of a lost place and time yeah, which funnily, yeah, yeah. funnily enough for me is sort of Barry Island in, in the summer <laughs> of 85 quite a lot of the time um, we also see um, Gary Moore and Phil Liner dressed as the Libertines <laughs> and right here, yes. here's, the, yes, here's the bit I really want to bring up we hear Simon Bates say the purple posers at 21 Prince yeah. and Paisley Park yeah. oh just fuck off and die Simon Absolutely. Bates mm. uh, I'd just like to say yeah that Simon mentioning propaganda duel I think out of the entire rundown and the entire chart, that is the greatest record in there. It's a fucking fantastic record, mm. that. There still is a lot of good shit in the charts, isn't it? It has to be yeah, said. Um, yeah, th this is something that surprised we've come, me. We've come across a lot worse it's, than this. It surprised me this episode, actually, that you know I was all prepared for it to be very you know Live Aid era, dinosaurs yeah. and really boring. But it's not. There is still loads of really cool stuff in the top 40. Yeah. But really though, Simon, who the fuck does Simon Bates think he is? Go, the purple posers at 21. Piss off. Yeah. <laughs> Prince, more talented than anybody in the entire top 40 that week or any week. And he's got the fucking nerve to say that. Anyway, all right, okay, move on. <laughs> Formed in Birmingham in 1984, the Fine Young Cannibals consisted of two former members of the Beat, David Steele and Andy Cox, who'd spent eight months listening to over 500 demo tapes before settling on a lead singer. Roland Gift, who was the lead singer in a whole ska band called The Acrylics, who had supported the beat in the early 80s. While Dave Wakeling's new band General Public immediately got signed, Fine Young Cannibals were still without a deal when they featured on an episode of The Tube performing this song in early 1985. They were immediately besieged by labels, signed with London Records and put out their debut single, 
and it's nipped up this week from number 12 to number 11. Now, Simon, being a fan of the beat, you must have had your, your beady little eye on this. Yeah, because I loved David Steele and Andy Cox's work with the beat, mm. and they've brought some of that kind of fidgety, restless, rhythmic sense yeah. with, with them mm. here to Fine Young Cannibals, as well as the weirdest dancing on top of the pops yes. this side of OMD, yeah, OMD's yeah. Andy McCluskey. <laughs> um, now, the thing, thing here is, um, I've actually got uh, um, my original review of... Uh, Johnny Come Home from Barry District News so I can read it out I mean first of all I'm going to say what, what I thought now watching it was that Roland Gift with his Ray Reardon slash Danny Murphy Widow's Peak he's he's, um, he's he's singing he's singing like he's swallowing a hot potato and trying to blow yes. it cool without spitting yes. it out yes it really is um, but but I, I did I did like it enough at the time to uh, give it um, a 9 out of 10 so let me just find Ooh. that review right here here it comes right okay and and I quote Fine Young Cannibals are Andy Cox, David Steele, ex-bass and guitar partnership of The Beat, and new vocalist <laughs> Not Roland leader of Gift. the Liberal Party. <laughs> yeah. And new vocalist Roland Gift. And what a vocalist he is! Exclamation mark. Oh. The music provided by the two ex-Beat boys nice. is sharp and minimal, with a hint of the old two-tone days. Soaring over the top is a wonderfully dirty, sinister saxophone. But, as I said, the real revelation here is the vocalist looking like a young Marvin Gaye and sounding like Otis Redding. I think I'm not exaggerating if I say he is one of the finest British vocalists to emerge in many years, and it is in his hands, along with the likes of The Untouchables and Big Heat, that the future of soul lies, and not with loose ends, five-star or debarge. (laughs) The the future is the past. Just ask Paul Weller. Wow. There we go. I do like the fact that you've um, you've name checked the probably the only two soul singers you knew at that time as well. <laughs> There's a bit of that, isn't it? Yeah, like the, the top of the shop, the most obvious words you could possibly go for. Yeah. But it, it goes back to, to um, you know thing that we we're talking about at, at the start of the show about uh, digging back into the past, yeah. and I yeah. think Finding Cannibals appealed to me at that age because they had that kind of classic sixty soul vibe to, to what they were doing, to, to the way he sang, the way they dressed. Mm kind of to the music although you can't really imagine a record like that coming out in 1967 no but no. Um, yeah I mean I, I, I clearly liked it at the time I don't like it so much now it's um, it's ironic in retrospect that the, the chorus goes what is wrong in my life that I must get drunk every night mm. because um, when I lived in Holloway in North London I used to see Roland Gift quite a lot and he was always in the local off license oh no <laughs> um, or, or he was he was out jogging so I, you know swings and roundabouts I guess health wise um, but they they brought out um, an anti-Thatcher single called Blue right, after this yes. which was much much better it wasn't a hit actually it's a colour so cruel yeah mm. I, I love that one being the sort of you know right on um, mm. teenager I was um, that was much better as was I reckon their Prince ripoff She Drives Me Crazy um, mm. But this one, in retrospect, I, I'm not really getting anything out of it, despite my excitable 9 out of 10 review at the time. Well, you had a right to be excited, Simon, because, you know, when when it did come out at the time, it, this was like, oh, shit, this is a bit different. I yeah. loved this. I loved this when it mm. came out. And and it's still kind of, it's saved from pure retroism by the kind of little bubbly elements in it. There's mm. there's little odd kind mm. of 80s textures in there that save it from just being a, an act of retroism. I remember buying this on 12-inch. I was that excited by it because I, I, I think I saw it on the tube. That, that appearance that you mentioned and being blown away by it and the B side of this yeah. is fantastic by the way it's it, it's, a, it's an instrumental that's that's really really good I actually depart company with uh, FYC um, by the time of She Drives Me Crazy but I loved them and yeah. I loved Gift's look um, I loved the high-waisted yes. trousers 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And everything. And just the way he did look like he'd been, yeah, teleported in from the 60s. Um, and I kind of, I think this was a rolling gift, oddly enough, because, yeah, the Ray Reardon Widow's Peak is unmistakable. But oddly enough, I think I slightly fancied him. It was one of the first pop stars that kind of sexually confused me um, at the age of 12. I was confused sexually at the time. Um, it was Roland Gift and um, Romano from TJ Hooker did that to me as well. Um, but, but you know, I, I remember buying this on 12-inch and absolutely loving it. And, and I remember Gift... Mm. They were amusing in interviews, Fine Young Cannibals. So I remember Gift getting in trouble for saying that second homes owned by Englishmen in Scotland and Wales were fair targets for arsonists. And I think that got him on the front nice. cover of the sun, um, you know, getting slagged off and stuff. In a sense, like you've said that, um, you know, the, the anti-Thatcher single, they were the, not the last of the sole lefties. That's not entirely true, but they were kind of... They're important because... Eventually, I think Fine Young Cannibals ditched all of that and just got greedy and, and mm-hmm. kind of were happy with the stardom. And by the time we're through to 87 and we've got people like Wet, Wet, Wet doing that soul thing, um, the British soul yeah. thing, those bands were only too happy to trouser shitloads of cash for what they did and not really care about anything else. They were the kind of yeah. among the last of the kind of soul lefties in a sense. But I, I love this record. Um, I still like it i'm not sure i love it anymore but it it's precisely the tension between the 60s-ness of his voice and the 80s-ness of the textures the bubbly little bass and the kind of weird little mm. synth things that come through that save it from just being an act of an act of sort of pastiche mm. and the late 70s-ness of the uh the guitar as well it's very um cheeky isn't it in, in it is and the yes. uh, and the dance moves as simon mentioned by the guitarists yes. um, were really important as well i mean it, they look daft now but i remember at the time watching the video just yeah. thinking that's a really cool way of playing guitar because normally <laughs> when you have a guitar tucked under your chin in that way you're gonna look like yeah. i don't know freddie and the dreamers or something but they they managed yes. to find a way of moving their legs about and playing guitar in a kind of i mean simon bates finds it amusing doesn't he but i, I actually thought it's pretty cool at the time they look a bit yeah. like you know those toy giraffes you get where you press your thumb up in the base and they collapse yeah. and then you let yes. go and because uh, it's all made out of beads and elastic. Um, it's a yeah. bit like that that their feet stay rooted in one place, mm. but they're kind of wobbling around in this weird elastic <laughs> way. I like it. Yeah. Oh well, one thing I've got to say is the clapping of the fucking audience is getting right oh. on my. Oh, it's the. Uh, it's, it said it's absolute worst at this point. It's a sign of things to come in it because that really did. 
you know that that was a thing of of the future top of the pops yeah we've had it all the way yeah. through 80s top of the pops but now it's just can you just shut the fuck up it removes any funk that there might be in the record yes. and makes yeah. it and, and just makes it sound like something that's played for ice skating or something yeah. granny claps yeah yeah fucking white people <laughs> <laughs> the following week johnny come home jumped up to number eight its highest position the follow-up blue would only get to number 41 in November of this year, but the follow-up to that, a cover of Suspicious Minds, got to number 5 in February of 1986, and they would peak in 1989 before splitting up in Their lead singer, Roland, will be joining me on Round Table, Radio 1 tomorrow. Just looking at it, I reckon that's the only lead guitarist who's totally made of rubble. It's <laughs> the way you tell them. It's the Top 40 Breakers. And this is the first chart hit for a brand new band. Simply Red at number 33, Money's Too Tight to Mention. So I went to the bank to see what they could do. There's a some rubbish joke about rubbery guitarists, Bates and Skinner launch into the breakers section starting with Money's Too Tight to Mention by Simply Red Formed in Manchester in 1985, Simply Red were formed out of the ashes of the Frantic Elevators, a punk band started by lead singer Mick Hucknall after seeing the Sex Pistols at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in 1976. After signing with Electra Records a few months ago, they released this debut single, a cover of the 1982 Valentine Brothers song, and it's a new entry this week at number 33. Now, before we talk about this song, chaps... Here's where the videos are. They're tucked away in the breakers section, aren't they? They don't like showing videos. They don't, and I wonder they... if it's partly because um, the bands are in complete control of the content of a video, because th- mm. there are some that we'll come to where um, it's yes. not probably not not very on message or not not the sort of thing the BBC wants to be putting on primetime TV. Certainly yeah. not. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, by the way, I noticed that um, Skinner and uh, Bates before they uh, go into the rundown, they're standing in front of what looks like a giant Def Jam record sleeve. It's this kind of uh, mural <laughs> yeah. on the back wall of, of a Technics deck with the arm. So it's as if kind of just a slight hint that hip-hop culture is on its way. I thought that was kind of interesting. We've we've looked at the whole video, um, as we have for all the Breakers ones, because it, interestingly enough, they do run the videos for, for quite a while, don't they? they? They get about a minute each, don't they? Mm. The first thing you see is is some proper Peaky Blinders nonsense. <laughs> Mick Hucknall's running about with his gang of urchins, and uh, yeah, and then they end up they end up playing a gig in a pool hole, which is just fucking stupid because no one benefits from it. I mean, if if you're playing, you know, if if, you, if you're playing fucking, you know, ten pound a pocket on uh, in the in the pool hall, you don't want Mick Hucknall screaming at you. <laughs> And you know, if you're in the band, all that clicking and clacking is going to get right on your tits. Yeah, it's just it's just stupid and impractical. Yeah, never the twain should meet. They don't play that kind of music in pool halls. In my experience, no. it's always fucking Bon Jovi or something. Um, oh man! So I mean, it's a revealing video because there's more black people in the video than you'd ever see at a Simply Red show. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, you know, obviously a big part of the history of British pop is about white British response to black America. And I'd include the Stones and the Beatles and actually yeah. 
thinking about this episode um you know hucknall and the style council to this but crucially yes. it should be about the imparting of something unique and kind of british to the take uh, hucknall doesn't do it he simply blands stuff out. The thing it reminds me the most of, not just because it's kind of set in a pool all environment, is an advert that was congruent with this. That Cronenberg ad, a new kind of strength where a white saxophonist gets tutored in how to have soul and uh, natural rhythm by, uh, by an elderly. You know, it's a repeated thing. There's a, there's a there's a kind of, there's an interview in the NME in 86 where Hucknall talks about when he went to Jamaica for the first time and how disappointed he was with the music because they weren't playing any Lee Perry or Keith um, Hudson and stuff. And, and you know, because dance was obviously going on. Um, mm. He's mining soul music, but but he can't abide... He's similar to Morrissey, in a sense, in that he can't abide it when black music gets modern. Um, so, so he's got that vague northern soul snobbery about the contemporary that's yeah. always kind of annoyed me. So this is soul music that no black people would listen to and it's soul music that's anti-american in a way um yeah. there's a lot of problems with mitt hucknall that are kind of for me really emblematic of the treatment of black music by white culture in that yeah. there's this avowed kind of love of it and he set up blood and fire records you know to reissue some fucking great stuff mm. but together with that with blood and fire none of the original musicians kind of got paid properly um mm. so th th there's that kind of thing with it and, and the problem with hucknall the deep problem with him is that he, there's something un-british about him in that he really delights in himself when he's hitting the kind of notes in this video that are kind of you know quite high and 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 and, and complex he, he looks so bloody pleased with himself and he was always so smug about himself he said didn't he i am one of the best singer songwriters this country's produced i mean mm -hmm. no sorry and 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 for me yeah simply red are, are i know there's there's been movements of late to rehabilitate simply red i'm not having it i i, I think they are absolutely um you know sort of everything that is wrong especially about a british response to black american music. i mean the song it's um it's it's a cover version isn't it it's the the, Val the valentine brothers and uh, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't know that at the time um which I'm, I'm going to come to that. But his look that you said, the Peaky Blinders thing, I, I think I quite appreciated that at the time because he had that Baker Boy cap with these ginger curls hanging out because as a ginger person, um, yeah. I felt it showed a way forward for a ginger kid, that sort of Dylan Thomas style. And um, I, I nearly adopted mm. it. Um, yeah. But um, I, I thought uh, I quite liked this song at the time, but in my Simon Says column, oh. uh, um, I gave it four out of ten. <gasps> Shall we read it? Oh, yes, right? please. All right. Yes. Simply red, money's too tight to mention. Um, this band have been saying a lot in the press recently, proving themselves to the anti-establishment lefties. But guess what? I don't care. If the music's no good, forget it. The words are aimed at the White House and especially America's interior policy. So how does the, the rate of VAT on condensed milk in the USA affect the British public? If songs are all we can aim at number 10, then let's. The song is also aimed at the American market monstrous white dance music trying to sound like all Stevie Wonder's worst records. Oh. It's, <laughs> it's been on the radio incessantly for weeks, and though the tune is catchy, it's nasty. <laughs> In the same way as Mai Tai's history, uh. I wish it would go away. There we go. <laughs> you were good, Simon, at that age. You were good. Well, I was, I was 17, but I'll tell you what, I, I agree with myself in uh, the, the bit the bit about why is he singing about America? Yeah. Who gives a fuck? You know, this is like a, a British left-wing band and they're singing about Reaganomics. I, I don't care. Uh -huh. You know, there's, there's more pressing things to be singing about right here. Anyway, yeah. 
the mid 80s such a quest for authenticity or what british white lads thought was uh, authenticity yes you know it's like yeah we we really like black culture but not your black culture or this black yeah, culture yeah absolutely no and i i was clearly guilty of that i was yeah i'm you know shamefully really i i was quite a lot like that although i was also obsessed with prince who was you know the most forward-looking musician yeah. of his generation yeah so i'll give myself that but yeah i mm. i totally bought into you know i i i wanted i wanted black soul singers to exist in black and white yeah. i didn't want yeah. to yeah, be yeah. in color do you know what i mean yeah. um because i i was that insufferable sort of teenage indie snob i think there's there's a commonality to a lot of the music on this episode uh simply red cult and style council they all seem yeah disgusted that it's 85 and the consciously looking back but but simply red are the worst kind of example of it i'd say and and, and i think what they yeah. were resisting was perhaps a sen- not what live aid was but I think the big bands had got a bit repellent to a lot of people by then. One of the common sort of enemies that all of these bands would attack would be Duran Duran, who just who just seemed to mm. sum up what was wrong and what they wanted to resist, going back to something with soul and authenticity and grit. Um, but what that mm. does, it reduces it, it. You know, we're talking about Prince. Think about what Prince brought out. That I mean, Prince wasn't all about artifice, but the, you know, he was a complex pop star, and his music was was all kinds of different things and futuristic, and also looking back. There's an attempt there to sort of, we simply read to to, to sort of suggest that black culture is still in touch with its roots, and and there is, without a shadow of a doubt, a natural rhythm. Um, sense to that feeling mm. um, that simply simply read as summing up. Whereas black pop itself, uh, amongst young black pop makers was forward looking always and, and and always had been and and you know i don't think i don't think simply red were listening to prince in 85 i think they were stuck with their otis no. redding records and their kent stop dancing compilations which is fine so was yes. i i was listening to kent stop dancing and all yeah. of that i was loving all of that me too i used to love oh, those, those compilations were amazing and, and and just an amazing introduction to so much i think i think they changed a lot of people's minds about all kinds of things yeah. as kent stop dancing com- comps but but um, yeah, to, to listen to that and to make an almost decision not or, or to ignore contemporary black pop and not be listening to, I don't know, 85, you should be listening to fucking Schooly D, do you know what I mean? I know it's easy in retrospect, but um, to make that decision, it, it it's a very telling decision to make and simply read yes, making. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, Al, can I just say one more thing? With the attempt at rehabilitation with Simply Red, one thing I've heard a lot of mm. is that Fairgrounds by Simply Red, you know that song, is actually mm. a really good yes. song. Yes. I'd just like to know what do you think. I think it's still shite. I think it's good. I am one of those people, yeah. Mm. It's, it's got right. that kind of it's got that kind of hustling Latin mm. rhythm to it that NERD used on She Wants to Move, and I really like that kind of feel to the, it. Uh, that's from the only Simply Red LP that I ever owned. It was joint ownership. I was in a relationship. It was... <laughs> it was either that or the fucking Lighthouse family. Give me a break. I bought a few of their records from time to time. I, I think I bought um, Do the Right mm-hmm. Thing. Do you remember that one? Mm. Quite like that single. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not particularly proud of it. That you know, they they, they, they don't mean much. They they made some horrible old shite. Yeah. But I was I was that kind of pop fan that I would sort of dip in and out of bands if, if they brought out a good single. I'd, I'd give them that. I said, oh, fine, I'll have that one. But you know, I, it didn't mean I was committed to them in any way. So the following week, Money's Too Tight to Mention leapt 12 places to number 21 and would get as high as number 13. The follow-up, 
Come to My Aid would only get to number 66 in September of this year and they'd have three straight flops before a re-release of Holding Back the Years got to number two for two weeks in June of 1986 and they became an ongoing chart concern until they split up in 2010. have lost a drummer but they've gained a hit she sells sanctuary Bradford in 1983 when lead singer Ian Asprey split up his previous band Southern Death Cult and linked up with former Theatre of Hate guitarist Billy Duffer, the cult, originally known as Death Cult, pinged around the lower reaches of the top 100 until they signed a deal with Beggar's Banquet Records. This is the follow-up to Resurrection Joe, which got to number 77 in December of 1984, and it's up five places this week from number 35 to number 30. Well, Simon, here he is, Ian Asprey, with his, with his trousers up on this occasion. <laughs> yeah, I believe I've told that story before. Uh, go, go back to previous podcasts if you want to hear it. Um, yeah, um, Simply Red, Finding Cannibals and the Redskins, whose photo we saw in the rundown, and the Star mm. Council, who we'll come to, were all part of what someone in the music press called socialism. You know, the idea that Thatcherism could be resisted by white or mostly white guys digging into vintage black soul music for inspiration to imbue their political lyrics with some sort of dignity or, or integrity and that was the thinking behind Red Wedge Tour and all these other bands like the Kane Gang and the Blow Monkeys and I bought into that big time but I was also I was being pulled in two directions there was all that stuff that I was into but I was being drawn to the dark side I was being torn in two like Natalie and Brulia. Um I was being torn <laughs> between the opposing forces of wanting to be committed to changing the world for the better and withdrawing into this kind of selfish solipsistic vanity um, represented mm. by goth and, and, and the latter one so in other words you were being a 17 year old <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> I can remember being uh, sat on a train to Cardiff on a Saturday with my best mate at the time, Andrew Hammond, um, talking about exactly this thing, saying, I don't know which direction I'm going in. I don't know if I'm going to be one of these like loafer-wearing lefties or if I'm going to be this kind of vain, um, self-regarding goth type. And uh, <laughs> and, I, and the, the thing that sealed the deal was probably this record. It really was. Really? She Sells, she sells Sanctuary. I, I remember uh, hearing this on a Tuesday lunchtime. Um, I'd cycled home from school to listen to the Top 40, ah. as I always did and being absolutely bewitched by it, mm. just from that kind of reverb at the start before the riffs even kicked in. Mm. And um, I'd, I'd read a piece about the goth scene in Smash Hits, and of course Smash Hits being really underrated as a kind of conduit for telling people in provincial towns yeah. what's mm, really going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, I, I was aware of people like Bauhaus and Susie the Banshees, but I didn't re really get that it was part of this whole kind of subculture. I just thought it was kind of punk or something. I didn't realise there was this whole other back cavey thing going on. Mm. Um so this record tipped me over into wanting a piece of that and um, I, I'd already seen the cult supporting Big Country at the Birmingham EC as we've established and uh, I saw Ian Aspie shagging a groupie between two buses blah 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 but I, I wasn't <laughs> sold on them as a band yet there, there was nothing musically that really grabbed me mm. but this really and I, I think it's, it stands up as an absolute you know all time rock classic it really, it really is and mm. uh, in, the, in the video they look fucking amazing I think they're almost as cool as Dave Vanian looked uh, in, in that damn performance um, Asprey had the best jewellery probably Duffy had the best hair um, there's a hilarious close 
producer um, in, in the full-length video of Ian Aspie licking the microphone in a yes. sexual way. But um, on on the cult's greatest hits uh, video compilation, Pure Cult, they've edited that out. Oh. He's obviously embarrassed by it because he looks a bit gay or something. Um, there was actually um, a, a, an interview with Asprey in the 90s, I think, where he completely sold out to rockism. And yeah. he, he was saying, my, my advice to young bands is don't wear any of that kind of puffy makeup stuff. Be a man. Yeah. So, you know, fuck that. But at this point, I I was completely entranced by the cult. And I, I went to see them in Cardiff Uni later in 85, mm. as did, I later found out, as did the Manic Street Preachers. Uh, um, uh. But but we didn't know each other at the time. Um, and I, I do wonder if the Manic's white jeans were partly inspired by the cult in this video. Because, <laughs> you know, Ian Asprey, I've got, I've got to say something, he, he doesn't look, to my mind, he looks a bit of a twat. In this video, <laughs> he really he looks, do, he looks awesome. like a really he looks like a really manky Piero doll in a charity shop. Oh, you're breaking my heart here. Al. I think he looks so cool. <laughs> yeah, just an opinion. You All know. right. I mean, I just thought he. I I don't know that the whole kind of um, 60s psychedelic thing. Um, well, when, yes, when, this, when, is, when, this is something that definitely needs to be spoken yes, about, doesn't I, it? In, in retrospect, I can't really justify it, but I I did kind of get into it a little bit. I remember. Um, my dad dragging me to um, Fairport Convention's annual festival in Cropperdy in Oxfordshire, and I hated most of the music, but um, I loved the the stalls that were selling kind of earrings made out of a peacock feather or like, um, <laughs> you know, necklaces made out of bits of bone and all that. And I bought all that because I wanted to be like Ian Asprey. So I did, yeah, I, I quite, I quite, quite got into the whole cult. Uh, hippie, hippie goth vibe, shall we say? The sitar sound at the beginning would have been quite a revelation for 1985 because you know we're only uh, we're only a year away from holding my shoe by Neil, <laughs> yeah, and, which was the absolute nadir of, um, of of you know psychedelia and you know that that kind of late 60s sound was absolutely fucking dead in the water, and then all of a sudden this band have come along and they're bringing it back and you know. I, I found that appealing because it was contraband. It was not allowed. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. thought they were breaking a rule by having that kind of, yes, you know, exactly, by, by, yeah. by having all that kind of. You could almost smell the, the sort of uh, incense wafting around it at the start, and I, yeah. I, I, I really like that. It's just eighty-five. I think was the time where British music listeners. I think it was the the peak moment of Doors fetishism. People were obsessed with Jim Morrison in eighty-five. I think that's recall. true. Yeah, books had come out about him, and there was just a lot of listening to the Doors and a, a, a massive, massive influence on Ian Asprey's singing style. It's, it's very, mm. very Jim Morrisonist. Yeah. All of that, the retroism that we've talked about in other bands, looking back to the sixties, it's forgivable for this because it's a thrilling record. It has a chug to it that's just fantastic, and and it's out of time. It's out of its decade, and all the more cherishable because of it. There's no nasty eighties yeah. textures in this record. Mm. And, and and actually, I think that the chug that they get going is something that, for me, uh, was perfected by Rick Rubin on the following album, on Electric. Yeah. I fucking loved Electric. That, yes. that was I loved that album. Um, for me, Simon's saying about being torn in two directions, I was kind of erring towards this side because I had a mate, uh, everyone had a metal mate in the Midlands, somebody who was yeah. kind of just heavily into metal. My one... Um, whose name was Stephen, he made his own samurai swords in, in, in school, you know, when he should have been doing CDT or whatever. He had a scrapbook filled with pictures <laughs> of Sam Fox and Linda Lusardi, and he read Kerrang, and he listened repeatedly 
in his house. I just remember sitting in his bedroom playing Yi Ya Kung Fu on his Commodore 64 um, and listening to, to Venom's Fuck Off and Die on a computer tape player that he'd hooked up to his brother's quadraphonic car stereo system wow. in his room. But the other thing he played Fuck. was was Love, the, 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 the album that this is from. I remember mm. not liking the album that much, but loving the singles, loving this and Rain and Revolution. Um, yeah. But Electric was the one for me. They made... The, they made more sense again the more press I read about them because Billy and Ian were a really hilarious double acting interview I, I tended to find because Billy had this kind of idiot savant thing going on that, that, that was that was really good it's a brilliant song it's a brilliant video it's a really mm. really good video um and for me it's just an everlasting anthem that reminds me of just dancing that dance you know the three steps forward three steps back <laughs> dance that I would I would still dance to this if drunk and when listening to it I can almost taste a bit of snake bite or red witch in the back of my throat it it, <laughs> it, 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 it for me is a classic of its time um, Neil you, you've got to come down to my club Spellbound sometime you would love it I man. absolutely have it's the, if I did that I'd crack out the old orange jacket the telescopic cigarette lighter and the eyeliner as well oh but, you must <laughs> but yeah I mean I, I, I've got a curious fondness for the cult um, I, I mm. depart company with the man after Electric, which is probably leaving out quite a bit. But Electric, I fucking love that album. And I love this single as well. Um, I, but- I, I wasn't ready for Electric yet, you know, because I, I bought into the goth thing so much. It's like, well, come on, you've only done two albums of that. Do yeah. One, you know, one more. Yeah. I'm, I'm not ready for this heavy yeah. metal shit yet. Because <laughs> I really wasn't. I was I was very anti-metal at that age. And then, yeah. But because they're one of my favourite bands, like, oh shit, I've kind of got to go with this. Mm. And yeah. yeah, I mean, Love Removal Machine is amazing. But um <laughs> and actually Wildflower was probably even better oh, but amazing um, I, I, I did quite like this kind of delusional thing that Asprey had that because he spent some of his childhood in North America that he was somehow a, a, a Native American uh, chieftain or something <laughs> and you know there was a B-side called Wolf yes. it's a B-side Wolf Child Blues where he goes just call oh, yeah. me Wolf Child because that's my name it's like alright alright Wolf Child you know Christ <laughs> Was it wasn't he called Little Plum though in the music papers at the time? <laughs> I think he was, but he's got one of those lovely voices mm. that's easy to parody. If you yeah. go like that, you are basically being Ian Asprey, and 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 I like that about him. And I, I remember, I think Electric they played when they played it live. It was one of those late night BBC One specials. Remember what Simon yeah. said about pop being rare on telly and that's why Live Aid was so important I remember taping that videoing it and just watching it re-watching it over and over again I could never say that the cult were no. cool now but at the time it, it's a thrilling record and, and there, there's something yeah. un-80s about yeah. it that, that, that's what's crucial um, there's something there's something kind of it hasn't got any of those horrible textures that Tears yeah. for Fears yes. or any of those other bands yeah. have got in them I mean and, and, and I don't yeah. want to be ripping on the man but the, the other thing I noticed in the video was some really awkward um, mic stand work. <laughs> awkward? I, I thought you looked quite confident. Come on, Ian. <laughs> Imagine it's some kind of magic stick that was handed down by your forefathers or something. But mic stand work was rare at that time. I mean, Julian Cope... It had, really was, yeah. Julian Cope had a mic he could sit on, couldn't he? It was like a chair mm. combined with a microphone. But most people who held mics were just holding small almost panatella-sized microphones um, yeah. while singing. Whereas this, panatella cigar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas this is a reversion to your classic kind of swing of the mic stand around. He might, might need a bit more practice, but hats off to him to, uh, for doing it. No, Though, fair enough. Those I, mean, kind I, I of... keep coming back to Prince. Prince was the only person at that time yeah. yes. who could do exactly. anything with a mic stand, like, you know, sliding on his ass from 20 yards and just hitting the mic exactly, like, sort of knocking it over 
um, and then sort of running and doing a skid and catching it before it oh, falls yeah. and Complete. Yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But that kind yeah. of those moments when you found that the sixties music you were listening to was being listened to by bands and artists were absolutely thrilling. One of the most thrilling moments for me, although it's a year later, you know the Kiss video, Prince, seen as you're talking mm. about it. Yeah. It was simply the buttons he had on his trousers and the fact that they were flared blew my mind because mm. in in yeah. you know in stonewashed denim 86 that was that was just a that was a it's not not a subversive act but it was a, it was a style statement and i, was I like, got yeah, the, why, why has he turned into john travolta what the fuck's going <laughs> on yeah but it, it similarly the cult's desire to kind of magic themselves back to 68 69 it was similarly a statement about the present mm. So the following week, She Sells Sanctuary jumped four places to number 26 and would eventually get to number 15. The follow-up, Rain, would get to number 17 in October of this year. I think Rain's the superior single. It's good. I'll give you that. Yeah. the highest new entry, Mick Torbett and Paul Weller, the Style Council, come to Milton Keynes. Formed in London in 1983 after Paul Weller split up the jam, the Style Council were originally a collective of guest musicians who swirled around Weller and keyboardist Mick Tolbert. This is a second single from the LP Our Favourite Shop, which got to number one for a week the previous month, and the follow-up to Walls Come Tumbling Down, which got to number six in May, and is based on an advertising campaign which tried to entice people and companies to relocate to the titular Buckinghamshire New Town. Now, I've got a feeling that me and Simon are going to be blathering on endlessly about the Star Council. So, Neil, in you come first. Yeah, yeah, not a lot to say, but, but for, I mean, I've got a, strange relationship with Paul Weller in a way because for ages my favourite Paul Weller thing which seems trite but it genuinely was my favourite Paul Weller thing was that Council Collective single with Jimmy Ruffin I bloody Sol loved it yeah Sol D yeah. yeah I loved that record I couldn't figure out why he never did anything else sort of for me anyways modern sounding uh, I perhaps had a problem with Rella because really shallow reasons he looked like a kid in my school and that's why right. I had a problem with Andy McCluskey as well I didn't <laughs> like pop stars I didn't like pop stars who looked like people I knew in a way um looking back <laughs> at the style council I obviously prefer them to the jam and I, I, it, they're one of those acts where I just want all those clothes do you know what I mean I want everything mm. that they're wearing because I think I think they, they look fantastic I love the keyboard on this song it's got a real Jerry Dammers more specials vibe Mm, um, yeah. lyrically really interesting and, and uh, but only one clunker line which I think is we used to chase dreams now we chase the dragon which is a bit, mm. a bit embarrassing mine is the second um, with the union jack on is the next line <laughs> yeah for me, they were one of those bands that, as I've said previous, I kind of loved the singles, didn't bother investigating the albums because I was a lady, lazy side. I loved Did You Ever Have It Blue. I loved Shout to the Top. Um, but it was clear that this wasn't new pop. It was a bit harsher, a bit more mournful. Um, and, um, you know, in talking about Simply Red, Star Council and all the people looking back at the 60s, there's a particular unity, I think, in Simply Red and Style Council because they're both kind of anti-American. I mean, this is what this song mm. is really about, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's a popular motif 
among UK bands and one I'm nearly always suspicious about but at least Style Council seem kind of internationalist in their perspective they've had a song and called try- internationalists yeah, yeah yeah and they're trying to at least you sense forge a future from the past rather than just endlessly mine it to sound like the past so so I, I will defer to you and uh, Alan Price's superior knowledge of the style council i i kind of like this song i didn't know it at the time but the more i investigate it the more i like it and i've obviously got to get off my lazy ass and investigate those style council albums because i think there's probably a lot of joy to be had there cafe blur cafe blue is the one but anyway yeah mm-hmm. do, do you think yeah, so i do but anyway um mm, i kind of agree with you on that one but our favorite shop is a fucking brilliant album i actually went just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I went on my rare gig excursions nowadays at the Rescue Rooms in Nottingham. There was a Style Castle tribute oh. band who did all of our favourite shop. Were any good? They were all right, actually. They were all right. I mean, the problem was is that Mick Tolbert actually looked like um, Orson Welles in the Sherry advert era. <laughs> and uh, Paul Weller, uh, when he did this song, uh, would kind of like lean away from the microphone during the high notes. <laughs> so, Is this um, the but Style Counselors? just to counselors. hear this song was a revelation, the Style Counselors. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, if you're into that sort of thing, go and see them. Um, when Neil mentioned that there's a clunking line in the lyrics, I thought he was going to mention a different line, actually. Um, yeah. Because it's noticeable that this clip on Top of the Pops carefully doesn't include the line, may I slash my wrists tonight on this fine conservative night, which which yes. some people think is terrible, but I thought was... Uh, I, yeah, I thought it was admirably direct. I think it's a blunt. brilliant line. It, it reminds me of um, that uh, thing that uh, Richie, Richie from the Mannix uh, wrote about... Uh, Hospital uh, closures kill more than car bombs ever will, um, and I, mm. I, I think that's the spirit of it: is that people are actually being driven to suicide by conservative policy, and that um, of, of the eighties, and, and it was, you know, it was murderous, but it was murderous in a kind of hands-off, distant way. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I love the message of that. Uh, so we don't get that uh, in in the uh, TLCP no. bit, but we do see scary ass clown Mick Tolbert. At the, uh, yes. at the at the greed burger concession, uh, yes. serving yes. a small girl a burger that bleeds all over her dress. Um, yes, yeah, you, you see the heavy symbolism there. Um, no, I I absolutely loved the Star Council. I was a massive Star Council yeah, fan. Um, me too. For me, Weller's best period, if we're going to be strict about it, was late Jam, early Style Council. Um, yeah. And I just loved everything he stood for, and you know, you know, the, uh, there's that whole stupid myth about the Beatles that Paul McCartney was replaced, or, or, yeah. or you know, Bob Dylan as well. People say, oh, you know, he was replaced by a lookalike and all that kind of stuff. Um, there were times in the '90s when Weller became this kind of, you know, the Stanley Road era, that kind of rockist um, bore, that kind of mm. Godfather of Oasis and all that kind of stuff. But I thought he cannot yes. be the same guy because the Star yeah. Council stood against rockism and I remember about oh, yeah. 10 years ago maybe a little bit longer I went to see uh, Weller uh, for my job as a journalist uh, in Wolverhampton and he was sort of standing with his, his you know his knee in the air his foot up on the, on the monitor doing sort of rock hero poses I thought come on man that's everything you used to be against but anyway yeah. forgetting all that going back to the Star Council um, they were an education for me uh, politically mm. um, the fact that their sleeves would have essays that uh, you know sort of put you onto sort of obscure Swiss revolutionaries and stuff like that and yes um, and, and, and musically that they, they were drawing not just upon soul music but upon jazz and kind of French stuff and um, they they were probably a true mod band uh, in that at least they were trying to somehow fabricate fabricate the future or a future from these bits of of the past and um yeah 
I think, you know, clothes have got such a lot to do with pop, and I do go on about this a lot. I've already said how various people in this episode influence how I dress, but previously I may have sort of gone out of this phase by the time this episode was broadcast, but previously... I'd uh, written off to Milandi of Carnaby Street and ordered uh, mm. this long white trench coat just because I wanted to look like Weller on the front of the Star Council's Money Go Round. Oh, man, yeah. I love that. I love that raincoat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the first gigs I went to was the Star Council in 1980. Oh, God, it would have been about... Just a, a week after Cafe Blue came mm. out. And um, I, me and my mate went and we couldn't get hold of a white raincoat so I, I borrowed my grandpa's raincoat which I then kept uh, the lapels of which were signed by Paul Weller and Mick Tolbert and uh, and then he, he dedicated a song to me uh, I asked him if he was going to oh, play wow. Mix Up yes. and uh, he did he said but the problem was if there's any bootlegs out there it will say that was for Ali because that's what I was calling uh, myself at the time for some oh, fucking story it's like ah <laughs> bollocks so me and my friend are all wearing overcoats uh, thinking we were really cool and everything. And now look back now, and we looked exactly like, you know, at the end of every uh, episode of Morecambe and Wise, where <laughs> Ernie Wise is on his own, and then Eric Walk- Morecambe walks across the back with a carrier bag. That's yeah. that's how stylish we well, were. Well, you know, I had that white um, uh, raincoat that uh, I thought I looked the fucking business. But um, yeah. my mate Neil Spahn, and hello, Neil, because he does listen, um, brought me down to size by saying, nice lab coat you got there. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard to be stylish on a council estate in the in the early 1980s. I remember um, one, of my, one of my mates, he was going around saying, oh, I'm a stylist now. And, uh, and I said, what does that mean? And he says, oh, well, you wear cravats. <laughs> And I go, oh, okay, yeah, well, which I did later on. But then the next time I saw him, he and his mate were sniffing glue in the uh, in the in the sand pit in the uh, infant school playground, and saying that he was on Evo Moon and he's just spoken to the Evo men. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, if that's what being a stylist is all about, I'm not, I'm not interested. I'm afraid. <sighs> Crap drugs. But yeah, I mean, and at the time, I remember he was really concerned about what people thought about that album. You know, he was asking, he was just asking everyone, what do you think about it? What do you like about it? What don't you like? Well, it pissed off jam fans, didn't it? Because it was so kind of mellow and jazzy and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the sort of the jam lads are like, where's the testosterone? Do you know what I mean? But yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if, if that's why Weller split the jam. I wonder if that's why, because people just weren't listening. They hadn't taken on the message. They had become yeah. a, t- a total exactly. kind of lads band. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Which is why it's so upsetting now to see videos of Paul Weller signing fucking Brexit scooters. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this one video of him going round and someone's done a scooter and he's just plastered it with Union Jacks and he's mm-hmm. sitting on it and signing it. It's like, oh man, Paul Weller in 1982 wouldn't have done that. He's Dadly Wiggins now, isn't he? I think Weller's come out of the worst of that kind of lad rock phase, though. The last two or three albums and the last few gigs I've seen by him, he will actually revisit the Star Council now, which f- for a while he wouldn't well, touch. He should. Well, yeah, they were brilliant. Um, and this song is one of my favourites. <laughs> to me, this is a song that Blur spent half their careers trying to make. Mm. The song and the video sums up what's going through Paul Weller's head in the mid-80s. I mean, um, just flicking through it now, you see them and him and Mick at the beginning doing the Abbott and Costello mm. routine. And then we see, you know, the, the house with the Union Jack on it. We see... Uh, the, the Death Burger thing. We see the game show with a cruise missile as a star yes. prize. Uh, Statue of Liberty slashing its wrists. 
um, you know, kids being skinheads or and young girls doing heroin and all that kind of stuff. It's quite a grim video. Mm. But, of course, what we mainly see is uh, Paul Weller and Mick Tolbert in their pants, <laughs> which I'm sure he would have been really chuffed about. But not for the first time, because remember the long, hot summer video where they're uh, reclining yeah, oh, by the God, side of a, of a river, know. of a canal touching each other up, you know. Yeah, and... we're not talking mm. about that until that comes up. Fucking hell, I could go on for ages about okay. that. All the shit that video caused oh, me. Oh, yes. Oh. I actually think uh, Walls Come Tumbling Down is a more powerful political statement mm. than um, Come to Milton Keynes. But yeah. certainly I was fully on board with everything they stood for. Um, the whole thing of backing the miners and fi- yeah. fighting apartheid and or everything that, that Stark House has stood for politically. Um, he, was, he, was, he was pretty much a god to me at the time, I have to admit. Yeah, me too, yeah. yeah. T- still, yeah. still for, for another year or so. Mm. But yeah, I mean, and the clunky line for me in this song is, uh, you know, I read the ad about the private schemes. I like the idea, but now I'm not, not so, so keen. keen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he he wasn't he wasn't the uh, he wasn't the wittiest of songwriters, but you know that didn't matter at the time. It, it really is, didn't, it... and it did cause a lot of aggro in the letters page of Smash Hits because a lot of people from Milton Keynes wrote letters. But the thing was, I'd been to Milton Keynes that year. And it was a shithole. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was I was totally on board with it. You know, and that was, you know, over 30 years ago, people in Milton Keynes who were listening to this, I don't know what you like now. You're probably like everywhere else. Looking back, it was an incredibly brave move of Weller to, to, to do the Style Council. And I, and I can't think of anything analogous since. Because I think what's often forgotten is just how big the jam got. I remember You remember their last appearance on the Tube? Yes. That was a unifying TV pop movement because everybody yes. knew that was going to happen and, that yeah. it was gonna, and everybody watched it. So for him to then cast not cast it aside as such but take such a change in direction i can't think of anyone in british pop who's really done anything like that since well i'd say terry hall and the fun boy three that was a bit of a yeah actually from the specials, yeah but that was, wasn't yeah, it? yeah yeah that was around I the mean, same the, time though wasn't it yeah yeah exactly yeah but yeah you, you're right you're right i mean christ we'll be talking about star council many a time and often in chart music as whenever we cover an early 80s one so let's just leave it at that and say that the following week, Come to Milton Keynes nudged up four places to number 23, its highest position. The follow-up, The Lodgers, got to number 13 in October of this year, and the band eventually split up in 1989. came across this lot when Jonathan King said they were great on BBC Two. They're actually Austrian. They've had a European hit with Live is Life and now Opus are making it here. Formed in Graz, Austria in 1973, Opus were a rock band which slogged through Middle Europe for seven years before recording their first LP in 1980. After recording four LPs, including a concept album about 1984 and acting as the backing band on a Falco LP, they put this single out which caught on across Europe, getting to number one in Austria, Germany, France and Sweden and it's up this week from number 37 
to number 26. Oh, my God. Schlager reggae. Anyone? Well, it's, it's for the granny claps, isn't it? it, it it's perfect for oh. the granny claps. So I prefer the lie back version. Yeah of this yes and and and, mm. prefer- and actually all. if i've got to listen to it i'd rather watch that video where maradona's doing keepy uppies to it um well yes uh, which is much more entertaining you know what i, I didn't know that they made this sort of 1984 concept album because that that sounds like the sort of thing that actual lieback would have done <laughs> yeah and, and yeah you're right I, I love the way that lieback turned this into this sort of totalitarian umpa marching song and made it really sinister <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As if it wasn't already. It's quite sinister. It is quite sinister. The the video as well, it's got a recurrent motif that happens in 80s videos. I I guess inspired by the Beat It video by Michael Jackson of, you know, Mm. roughnecks brought together by the power of music. And this is the... Hollywood punks. I love Hollywood punks in anything. Quincy punks. My favourite example of that, I think, is the Ashford and Simpson video for for, um, Solid, which which has a lot of street punks meeting under a bridge but brought together by the beauty of the music this video mm, tries, as they would be as they would be yeah and this this video um, attempts to do the same thing um but fails basically i think because the lead singer looks like terry sullivan at brookside <laughs> yes he does <laughs> I've got, um, yes he does I've, I've got david copperfield the three of a kind version um trevor mm. eve and bob carroll g's being the, yes. the main guys <laughs> and this is how at the time opus look how i imagined all europeans looked at this time <laughs> this is really what i thought they all looked like well they did really um the, the whole hollywood punks thing in in the video these sort of like badass leather clad spiky head good for nothings looking around the back sneering at the band but then finding themselves tapping their feet and nodding their heads and next thing you know they're really into it and they've um, got this spiky thing on a on a rope or something yeah, haven't they yeah. that they're gonna they're gonna throw the band it's like well hang on a minute you're in an arena you've obviously paid to get in already <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So what the fuck is that about? Oh, there's this gig that we're really going to hate. So let's pay fucking, I don't know, £10 or something each to be in there and be really fucked off by it, but then really like it. <laughs> no, Quincy Punks, that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to actually ask you, what was that American TV show where it has the classic kind of Hollywood punks in it? That's well, the there's, there's, there's two of them. There's, there's Quincy, but I contend that the better one is the episode of Chips with pain in it. Oh, have right. you seen that one? Yes, I have, yeah. Oh, I dig pain. The pain in my brain. They're brilliant, they are. Um, can I can I read my review of Life Life is Life? Oh, oh wow. please from, do. From 1985, um, from the Simon Says column. Um, and I must warn that it contains a factual error about where the band are from. But um, yeah, Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. Um, remember a record called Susanna by the art company? Well, no. this is exactly the same. And I, readers, seem to be the first to notice, exclamation <laughs> mark. <laughs> they are, of course, Dutch. And, <laughs> oh, and have used the same phony um, sing-along audience, Yamaha play-in-a-day jumpy keyboards and acoustic I failed the play school audition guitars. And oh, who is responsible? Cutting your scythe, Simon. Who is responsible? <laughs> yes, yet again, it's Radio One's Gary Davis. I'm a peace loving person, but um, what, what with the lead singer's voice on this, the worst record of the year, and the persistence of the lunchtime poser, I'm feeling near homicidal. <laughs> <laughs> rating, rating. Zero, then in brackets, and even less if I actually hear it again. There we go. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So it makes me want to murder Gary Davis. 
That's <laughs> fair enough. Simon, did your did your reviews ever get spiked, or did anyone ever have a word with you? It was remarkably uninterfered with. I think they just waved everything through. They didn't know what I was on about half the time. Oh, that's <laughs> so, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but who's buying this shit, Neil? Uh, fine, all the people of Barry. Oh, sorry. Go on, carry on. All the people <laughs> of Europe. All the people of Europe. I would say were buying this, but this was the biggest hit in Australia. I think. Um, that's Is it? Where, that's really? Where it but. I don't know. I was watching the video for this on YouTube, and and it is proof that a lot of people have delusions of better pass. I mean, I was thirteen, twelve, thirteen uh, when this came out, and at the time, I was already wondering if I was born in the wrong time, you know, and, and wishing <laughs> I was born in another place or another time. But you know, when you read the comments under this on YouTube. This makes me remember when the world was okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? To to have that thought from Opus, life is life. Yeah. It goes to prove different strokes for different folks, I guess. People on YouTube are fucking thick, aren't they? (laughs) It's always, you you look at stuff like that and you just wait, okay, how long, how many comments is it going to be before someone mentions Muslims? Yeah, 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 but yeah. but the, the it's like, oh, you, it used to be great here before the Muslims ruined everything. <laughs> the Muslimic infidel. It's like no, no, we ruined everything quite nicely. Thank the, you. The toppermost comment that always gets loads of votes that really bugs the fuck out of me, and it's under every video that's pretty uh, of music before 1990. Really, it's usually I'm only 13, but I really dig this music. Like they're yeah. expecting a slap on the back, and also. Um, I'm so glad my parents played me this when I was growing up so that, you know, I learned what good music was. You get comments like that and the opus life is life. Yeah. It's nuts. It's terrible, isn't it? Dutch bastards. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, mean, I was expecting German, Simon. I was way off. You really swerved <laughs> yeah, us there. Yeah. <laughs> so the following week, live is life. What, what does that even mean? It's about the power of live music, Al. Aren't you feeling it? Is that what it means? I think that's what the song's about. The song apparently is is a homage by the band themselves as to how great they are live and how f- powerful their live oh, music d- is. Oh, don't they just demonstrate it <laughs> in the video? Hang on, I've got to check this. When we all give the power, we all give the best. Every minute of an hour, don't think about a rest. Then you all get the power... You all get the best. <laughs> when everyone gives everything and every song, everybody sings. What the fuck are they going on about? <laughs> and it's weird Fucking because, the, you, know, you know, the bit the, the bit at the beginning of the video where the kind of weedy folk band get bottled off mm. and then yeah. they come on. The way they're tooling themselves up before they come on stage, you're expecting fucking Motorhead to come out because they're tucking yeah. away their big drumsticks and their guitars. And then they come out yeah. with this weedy kind of umpire bullshit um yeah the following week live is life jumped 11 places to number 15 and got all the way to number six however it would be however it would be their only bit of chart action opus ever got in the uk but in 1990 oh, fuck however it would be their only bit of chart music ah! <laughs> fuck them that's it i'm not talking anymore about them <laughs> Maradona did the keepy-uppy bit to them. That's worth checking out, that is. Live is life, that's Opus. Do you reckon they can't say live is life without saying live is life as well? It's the way you tell them. Here's the top ten. (laughs) Number ten, this is Marillion. (sighs) Marillion. 
history at number nine. One of Taylor's favourites. Up to number eight, this is Bruce Springsteen. Tonight he's at Wembley. It's Independence Day. He celebrates at number eight. A friend of mine on Facebook today described I'm on fire as Bruce Springsteen with a hard on. And he's quite excited about that. You <laughs> <laughs> can see his point. It's quite a good song. Burning up the American charts, Billy Ocean, and a success here too. Suddenly is at number seven. Oh, Christ. Mm. Number six, a former number one. It's the crowd. You'll never walk alone. Oh, the crowd. Oh, my God. <laughs> Lemmy and the Nolans and Bruce Forsyth. Singing for the Ben Hardwick Trust, Marty Webb is at number five. Oh, now Marty Webb singing a song about a dead rat to a, a soft-focused picture of a toddler. Which we're yeah. going to have to come back to because there's quite a lot to say about that. <laughs> sort for charity. Sort for charity, yeah. It's all Esther Anson's fault. And moving up to number four, it's Cool and the Gang and the wonderful Cherish. And again, similar to uh, Cool and the Gang is similar to uh, Billy Ocean, uh, a band who've done great things, just releasing absolute schmaltz. Yeah. They they look like we're wearing Quality Street wrappers. <laughs> Here's Madonna hanging on to Sean Penn with number three hit, Crazy for You. Oh, fuck off, Madonna. This guy used to be Giorgio Moroder's studio assistant. It's Harold Faltermeyer at number two. And Harold Faltermeyer, right, he's German, but this, again, is big American culture dominating yeah. this Axel mm. F. It is. from the Eddie Murphy film, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. It's the squares. The, the squares are winning. It's music for squares. Mm. It's the music. You know what? You remember that right God advert where the uh, businessman starts breakdancing? Yeah. This is what he... He break dances yeah. too, I think. And they show mo way more of this video than any of the others for some reason. Yeah. Well, it's number That's two. Right. There's a couple of kids in my school who reckon they could break dance, and this is the sort of thing they play. They were awful, though. <laughs> but, but ladies loved it. I'll say that. Axel F. Harold Fultemeyer. Okay, second week at number one. It's Frankie and Sister Sledge. One. see how cheerful right um skinner and bates are looking at this point yeah. um, and i think the reason skinner and bates look so cheerful is because the culture has come back round to them again um their, their mm. smug grins are screaming your revolution is over mr lebowski condolences the bums <laughs> last <laughs> it really is because we're, we're i don't think we've seen any reggae we're not seeing much hip-hop harold faltermeyer being the nearest thing yeah yeah, yeah, and Opus being the nearest thing to yeah. reggae in the whole fucking thing. That's terrifying. But that's the weird thing. We were talking previously about these acts looking back. Actually, when you look at black pop that's in this top 10, Billy Ocean, Corn the Gang, and what we're going to talk about that's number one, they're all old acts ultimately revisiting sort of 70s balladry or, or kind of 60s thing. It's a, it's, it's a world waiting for hip-hop. It's waiting for Jam and Lewis. It's waiting for Control yeah. and things like that to have their effect. Mm. Going back to the whole Bruce Springsteen thing, and indeed uh, Harold Faltermeyer to some extent, I was so, and, and we mentioned this uh, talking about the, the Star Council, I was so anti-American 
at the time. I, I really mm. felt that we were in the cliche of the days, the fifty uh, first state of the mm. USA. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I actually recently re refound the Smash Hits readers poll from nineteen eighty five that I'd filled in. Oh, and, uh, uh, one of the things I put there was. <laughs> Shall uh, we? I, I haven't got it handy, but well, actually, I'll tell you one thing that's in it. It says non-event of the year, and I put Bruce Springsteen's tour mm. just because I was so <laughs> against him. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I, I really had this the feeling around this time that everything was becoming so American. People were going to see American films, you mm. know. People were going to see John Hughes movies, and they were dressing like Americans. And and, and another thing I, I put is like worst worst film of the year was uh, Rambo: First Blood Two. Um, I hadn't even seen it. I hadn't mm. even seen it, but I just mm. knew what it stood for. Yeah, and yeah. everything everything that stood for I, I hated and and the other thing that we see happening to pop um, in this rundown of the top 10 is the profound influence of um, Live Aid and Band-Aid because of the two charity records yeah. in it yeah. so yeah you've got the crowd mm. singing an awful version of You'll Never Walk Alone um, they, yeah. it's, it's quite sobering to realise that for the Bradford Fire all, yeah, they're, they're all younger than me now all these people but they seemed impossibly yes. old at times really sobering thought Um and yeah, just the, the weird ragbag of people who are in it, um, the list of the actual participants in it, it's just bizarre. Mm. It's, I mean, it I is, won't read them all out, but people from the boxer John Conti to um, the drummer from New Model Army, um, uh, Black <laughs> yes. Lace, Motorhead, um, Tim Healy out of Alfida's Ain't Pet, which means that um, yeah. the, 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 the youngish lad from the 1975 must be gutted that his dad's been on number, number one record and he hasn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like Bernie Winters and yeah. uh, Jim Diamond, the Baron Knights, Keith Chegwin. It's just this kind of ragbag of light, light wow. entertainment personalities. And you wonder who pulled that together. There's there's two ways of making a record like that happen. Either you have this massive wish list of all the biggest stars of the day and you sort of cross them off one by one when they say no. Or you just think, oh, who have I got in my phone book? And this must be, this has yeah. to be the latter. But, oh, it's, it's even got yeah. Ed Stupot Stewart in there whose breath stinks. Fucking hell, <laughs> yes. Um, Peter Cook, Peter Cook is on it. What oh, the hell? Man. Shit. Yeah. So you just wonder whose phone book was that? That is just really odd. Well, fucking good phone book, yeah, yeah, yeah. though. And, and what with Rolf Harris and Dave Lee Travis being uh, on the same session, I just I just hope the Nolans were all right. <laughs> yeah. Shit, you know, yes. Um, yeah, uh, but there's that. And then um, Marty Webb. The toddler was Ben Hardwick, who was um, a child who died aged three after becoming the youngest person ever to undergo a liver transplant, which is obviously unimaginably sad for his family. But he became a national obsession mm. when Esther Ranson began featuring the story on, on That's Life and she launched a charity appeal for which the, the Marty Webb single was was a fundraiser. Um, now, mm. the way I looked at it at the time and, and now, indeed, is that providing medical care to liver patients and support to their families, that's what we have an NHS for. That's what we have social services yeah. for. Now, Thatcher wanted Britain to return to Victorian values. And charity is a profoundly Victorian idea. The yeah. idea that, that yeah. social problems can be solved by the voluntary benevolence of the rich, by the goodwill, the good nature of the rich, rather than compulsory taxation and state action. And um, my, my thinking of this was actually profoundly influenced by the House Martins debut single, Flag Day, which, which also yes. came out in 1985. Um, the That's first, right, the first yeah. lines of which were too many Florence Nightingales, not enough Robin Hoods. And mm. the chorus when yeah. it's a waste of time, if you know what we mean, try shaking a box in front of the Queen. So um, mm. as, as well as distorting ideas about how 
problems should be solved. I think Band-Aid and Live Aid also ruined pop. And that's not a trivial matter. Um, it changed people's ideas about what pop was for, as I say, I said at, at the top, that, yeah. that it's, it's, it's there to be socially responsible and, and helpful rather than rather than mind-blowing. So, Yeah. We're, we're avoiding talking about fucking Frankie by Sister Sledge, aren't we? Yeah. Before, before we get to Frankie by Sister Sledge, can I just read out my review of Crazy For You by Madonna? Oh, please. Oh, please right, do. Because okay. uh, we all know what I feel about Madonna anyway, but um, here we go. Right, we do, um, yes. Okay. Um, I am, this is when I was 17 years old, remember, I'm becoming increasingly suspicious of whether or not Madonna is real. It's been said before, and I'll say it again, she set the cause of feminism back a good few years. Um, so, so many men seem to need some kind of superstar sex symbol to yearn for, and in this respect, Madonna is stepping into Debbie Harry's shoes. The music here is pop, pure and simple commerciality. Um, I don't care who buys it as long as there's lots of them. I put in inverted commas. Um, what happened to the, to the uh, achingly hip disco princess with the eccentric clothes and and groovy <laughs> how's that for a word dance tracks that's the madonna i remember i gave it three out of ten and basically the reason being oh uh, simon um, crazy few by madonna um reminds me of those house parties that i mentioned earlier where i i yes. couldn't get a snog so mm, you know mm, i was yeah. standing there watching other people two by two their bodies become exactly. one exactly so that record and you're there pitching a tent I, yes <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, sod this, I'm over the Butlins disco. Yeah. So, yeah, it can absolutely sod off. All right. All right, Sister Sledge. We've eh? already covered Sister Sledge in chart music number four, but after scoring three top 20 hits in 1979, they dropped off the radar. However, in 1984, Thinking of You, a five-year-old album track that had been the B-side to Lost in Music, was re-released in the UK and got to number 11. This was followed up by Lost in Music itself and We Are Family both making the UK chart. This is the first cut from the new LP When the Boys Meet the Girls, which was produced by Nile Rogers, who said he absolutely hated it when it was first demoed to him, but then he realised a week later that the tune was still stuck in his head, so he demanded that they record it. This is its second week at number one, after it knocked You'll Never Walk Alone by the crowd off the top spot. All right, well, you know, like Billy Ocean and Cool and the Gang in the countdown, um, here was a once great funk slash soul act reduced to absolute shit. I mean, I, I despise... Frankie by Sister Sledge more than pretty much anything else in the show um, they'd fallen mm. from Lost in Music one of the greatest pieces of music ever made to this mm. and th- you know this kind of twee nostalgic bollocks and uh, we have to talk about the live lyric um, yeah. I, <laughs> I looked into your big eyes and said to myself we could have had twins now, yeah. now yeah. is that how fertility works <laughs> L- largeness of eyes determines multiple births I don't know Yeah, uh, it's just horrific the, the other thing and this is nothing to do with anything that um, I noticed about this performance they're performing on a stage with um, massive pink triangles all over it mm. but uh, so yes. I, I wondered, you know, were they meant to signify what Bronski beat meant by the giant pink triangle, or is, is you <laughs> yeah, know. or maybe they thought, oh, Frankie goes to Hollywood's yeah. coming on, they're yeah, gay yeah, on, yeah, they're exactly. less. <laughs> yeah. I think the penis yeah. is a reflection of the day glow horror thing that is the video to this mm. song that I remember mm, much yeah. more because that got played quite regularly. It stayed at number one for four weeks, didn't it? And uh, uh, I, I, yes, I, I have a, I mean, the sleeve of this single was vi- was that day glow pink. 
which always, I mean, I wouldn't have bought it anyway because it's a terrible, terrible record, but you've got to be careful with no. pink records. They really stand out in your collection. Mm. Like things like mm. Nevermind the Bollocks and um, yes. Birthday by the Sugar Cubes as well, I seem to recall having a really pink sleeve. Um, you've got to be yeah. careful of them because they stick out in your record collection. This is, as Pricey says, a fucking awful record. Um, Billy Ocean, Corn the Gang and Sister Sledge, all old acts, ultimately revisiting 70s balladry, or in this case, 60s do-what. The most telling thing is, this went nowhere in the US charts. Um, didn't get anywhere. No. But in Britain, it was a monster hit. A bit like Philly, uh, Phyllis yeah. Nelson's Move Closer did a similar move that year. It got nowhere in the US. Um, was a big hit over here. And I think the reason is, you know, one of the acts that we've talked about so much on um, TOTP, about TOTP, is Shawaddy Waddy. Yeah. And, you know, yes. I think this is not cashing in on Shawaddy Waddy by any, ch- by any remote <laughs> sense, but it's cashing in on a similar market who want that kind of pastiche um, retroism. And I just remember at the time being annoyed by the video, being massively annoyed by the bit when they go down, down. I just fucking hated that bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's considering, you know, we're talking about big, bold moves of, of, of Paul Weller moving on from the jam. When, As Pricey said, it's inconceivable, <laughs> isn't it, that these are the people who did Lost in Music. Uh, 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 yeah. You know, just... Thinking of you. Just a matter of a few years earlier to get to this. Um, Niall Rogers' initial yeah. assessment that it was shy and then doing it because it was catchy. I mean, catchy is kind of one of those words that gets attached to pop like it's always a positive thing well you know chlamydia is catchy crabs are catchy and this this is that kind of catchy it's fucking horrible record it is isn't it and you know they they're they're, um they're doing a live performance and they they just look like a a three minute long case catalog (laughs) advert don't they just some fucking horrible mid-80s fashions on display here but anything else to say about this no, Not really, no. No, there, there isn't, is there? Dustbin, dustbin there of history, please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Frankie stayed at number one for two more weeks, keeping Axel left by Harold Faltermeyer off number one until it was usurped by There Must Be an Angel by the Eurythmics. It became the third biggest selling single of 1985. Do you want to take a guess what the uh, the top two were? So do they know it's Christmas is the year before? Yes. Ah, so, it could still be though. No, it? it's not. It could be. No. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It can I, can I, a clue? Is it a charity thing? No. Ah. Oh. Hmm. Gold knows. Uh, it's the it's the women again. Ah. Is it Madonna? Is it? No. Shall I put you out of your misery? Yes, please. Yes. Number two, I know him so well. <gasps> Number one, The Power of Love by Jennifer Rush. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. That would not be, yeah. Oh, awful. The follow-up, Dancing on the Jagged Edge, only got to number 50 in September of this month, and they were denied any more top 40 action until Lost in Music, Thinking of You, and We Are Family were re-released again in 1993. Fucking hell, we can't get enough of them songs, can we, in this country? Mm, and rightfully songs. so. Let us remember them that way. So 
second week at number one for the sisters sledge that was cracky if you want to know what's going on behind the scenes at top of the pops you could try this it's steve blacknell's book top of the pops and it's available at your bookshop now all the secrets i'll tell you a secret now next week janice long john peel a live show enjoy it we'll see you soon Just before uh, we uh, hear Smuggler's Blues, Simon Bates um, pimping the book of Top of the Pops, mm. saying, and he goes, if you want to know what's going on behind the scenes of Top of the Pops, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. I think, I think CID <laughs> might be quite interested in that. Born in Detroit in 1948, Glenn Frey was a founder member of the Eagles until they split up in 1980. He released two solo albums before coming to our attention when the heat is on recorded with this week's number two artist Harold Faltermeyer, got to number 12 in April of this year. This is the follow-up, a song about dealing cocaine, which was picked up and turned into an episode of Miami Vice, in which Frey featured as a guest star, and it's up 10 places this week, from number 38 to number 28. Now, we've, we've discussed Miami Vice before. We, we, well, Taylor thought it was a load of rubbish. I was inclined to agree with him. Um... Cocaine wasn't, still wasn't a thing. In the words of Morrissey, I swear to God, I swear, I never even knew what drugs were. <laughs> yeah, I found the drug references in this inappropriate. There weren't, there weren't, there weren't the sexual swear words that Simon Bates was so fond of. But um, I was quite shocked that cocaine no. and heroin and hashish were mentioned. When, like you say, in Britain, we were we we were neophytes at this game. We were still. Yeah, well, we, we had, had glue, we had butane gas, and um, that's about it, yeah. really. Yeah, um, it's, it's glue. It's definitely yeah. where I came from. Yeah. yeah, and and kind of the the really the 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 only I mean it would be interesting to see the audience whilst this is playing, but as ever with these yeah. top of the pops from this era, too many zoo wankers um, pushing mm. themselves to the front and doing the same dance that they do to every single record. Um, terrible yeah. clothes all round from those audience members that I can see. Um, this really. is not only. Um, depressing me it's oppressing me that's certainly how i felt at the time um mm. i just felt like um it, it was it was just symbolic of uh, american dominance over britain and um i've got i've got a, a review here I, this is the last time i'm going to do this obviously uh, uh my, my review of uh, smugglers blues smugglers blues eh i bet middle class secluded californian glenn has never heard a blues record in his life <laughs> oh, he will probably carry on playing the same self-satisfied pomp rock he first bored us with in the Eagles for the rest of his life. The only way he can get a recording contract these days is by making backing soundtracks for films, Beverly Hills Cop, or TV shows, in this case Miami Vice. He could learn a few lessons from his former drummer, Don Henley. Boring AOR. Rating 1 out of 10. Oh. Boom. Oh, my. The hammer of Barry has <laughs> struck again. <laughs> <laughs> what Simon said there in that review about the Americanisation, it did feel in 85, 85, some of my most powerful memories of 85, was going to see films like Back to the Future and Ghostbusters, and they dominated our culture to such a huge extent. Yes, they did. I just remember being in a heaving, sweaty mass of kids on the last day of term going to see Back, Back to the Future. Genuine hysteria about going to see these big American films. They did have a real dominant kind of thing going on in 85. And, um, and what we see in the uh, when, when it's shown on top of the pops, you see the audience, and it's basically the kids you hated. <laughs> yes. The kids who 
the kids who never had cool hair but sometimes always had a girlfriend uh, mm-hmm. and they're there with their sleeves rolled up to, uh, on the jumpers rolled up to their elbows mm-hmm. and basically um, the wankers yeah. had won yeah that's what's going on here the wankers had won um, and this this song I mean it's just it's made to be on endless kind of 50 greatest driving <laughs> anthems complexes yes. isn't it it's, yes. it's total, total dad music yeah. but um that's my kind of takeaway from this. It's just it's the final track on this episode of Top of the Pops, and just this sort of crushing sense of disappointment that that's, that's it. We've lost. We've lost. So the following week, Smugglers Blues moved up six places to number twenty-two, its highest position. The follow-up, Sexy Girl, would only get to number eighty-one in August of this year, and he was done as a chart act in the UK. So what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with the Little and Large show, the 9 o'clock news, more Wimbledon and then international athletics from the World Games in Helsinki, presented by David Icke. BBC Two is shown an Osman Brothers special from the Silk Cut Festival in Sing Country, where Ken, Ken and Ken Osmond introduce their new direction, then there's a documentary about Tewkesbury in Alec Clifton Taylor's English Towns, followed by Pity in Istra, a play about a stonemason battling to finish a sculpture before Oliver Cromwell's lads smash it up. And then Newsnight and the Open University. ITV is running the film version of Love Thy Neighbour. We've seen that one, haven't we? No. Love Thy Neighbour? Well, you know me, I wasn't an ITV person. Right, yeah, seen yeah. the show but never seen the film uh, so it just gave him a, it just gave him a longer opportunity to be racist I guess yeah it was <laughs> yeah. basically it's it's the one where um, they, uh, they 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 put Eddie in a cooking pot when he's passed out oh and uh, all the black uh, workers um, dress up as Zulus and dance around it and it's ever nice. so funny <laughs> yeah 1985 everyone <laughs> Then an episode of TVI which focuses on the Bishop of Durham not believing in the virgin birth. Then News at 10. Then the computer series database presented by, Simon? No idea. Tony Bastable. Tony Bastable, yes. Get in the Bastable. And finishes off with Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense. Channel 4 is screening Promise the Earth, another documentary about women, then the sitcom Tandoori Nights, then the film Another Time, Another Place, where a Scottish woman on a barren island starts knocking about with a local Italian prisoners of war, then more athletics from Helsinki and the latest stage of the Tour de France. So, me boys, what are we talking about in the whatever stands for a playground in July? tomorrow do you know what probably opus <laughs> because as, as, yeah. as, as shit as that record is i'm pretty sure that me and my mates started taking the piss out of it all the time la 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 just endlessly yeah. so yeah probably that yeah it would be an, it would be a thing of not actually talking about what was good on the episode because there isn't much that is good it would be a, a thing of taking the piss out of it yeah and what are we buying on saturday um record wise the cult and um probably going to look for a shirt like dave Anian's. Nice. For me, I'd be buying. Well, I did buy uh, Finding Cannibals. Um, big twelve-inch buying phase for me. That West End Girls. I remember buying nineteen and Road to Nowhere uh, were my twelve-inch purchases <laughs> of that year. But the noticeable thing about this nice. episode, in a way, is that it doesn't really contain any of the pop that I think any of us were listening to. For me, eighty-five is the year mm. of the Cure's Head on the Door and um, Prince Around the World in a Day, um, and these things are not mentioned at all in this episode. 
And what does this episode tell us about July of 1985, Simon? Um, the war is over and we've lost. The yeah. wankers have won. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, we've gone beyond what we saw in the 83 episode. There we saw Pop sort of slightly getting colonised by the straight men, the Howard Joneses. Um here we see it beyond that. Um, these are album acts who happen to drop singles, but consider pop a little bit beneath them. And the excesses of the Wham and Pete Duran era are just shunned. We've got a Live Aid on the way. It's a horrible, horrible time. Um, I was looking at an ep- a, 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 a copy of Smash Hits from 85, and actually none of the acts horrified me as much as the advert for sweet corn relish flavoured skips. Do you fucking remember them? It no. was it, it was a horrible time for crisps and for pop. <laughs> Tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you know what you know what I think the message that Skinner and Bates are giving us with their smarmy grins is they're telling us the kind of pop kid listeners that if you want anything that's going to actually uh, nourish your intellect or move your soul then don't come to top the pops for it anymore don't mm. come to the charts for it you're going to have to dig underground to find the good stuff <laughs> they don't realize they're telling us that but that's what they're telling us and on that cheery note we bring another episode of chart music to a close but not before thanking some more people who kick some dollar into the chart music account so mark cowan martin young ross patrick Adam Maluska, NMC, Rob Martindale, Abigail Smith, Jack Seal. These are all names that will live on forever in chart music history, along with David Workman, Nenoff, Adam McCarty, Gray McClearer, Gavshack, John Davis, Gareth Allen Hunt, Shane Galvin, We Are the Rain, You Are the Sun, and Now We've Made a Rainbow. There'll be more bonus tiers coming soon, so sit tight and listen keenly. Until then, remember you can find us on www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast, and you can reach us on Twitter at chartmusictotp, and of course, one last plug, patreon.com slash chartmusic. So, thank you very much, Simon Price. Ah, you're welcome. Ta ever so much, Neil Kulkarnay. Toodle pip out. My name's Al Needham, and I am this year's lovable bisexual. (laughs) Chart music. Smash 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.